Astonishing Legends would like to thank Best Fiends, BetterHelp, Feels, The Great Courses Plus, Capsule, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In April of 1764, a young woman living in the French parish of Saint-Fleur-de-Mercoir was guarding her family's cattle with some dogs in a quiet mountain pasture when she noticed an enormous predatory creature had suddenly appeared. To her shock, the unknown animal was so foreboding that her dogs scattered and ran away, leaving her seemingly defenseless as she stared into the maniacal eyes of this monster. Whatever it was, it had a broad chest, a long snout, and a large head. It also had a black stripe running down its back to the tip of its long, thin tail. She had no idea what it might be, but one thing became clear. It wasn't there for the cattle. It wanted her. Surprisingly, her cattle formed a protective wall around her. The creature lunged repeatedly, but they held their ground, defying its attempts to maul her and possibly carry her away. She survived the incident without injury, albeit with torn and tattered clothing from the encounter and undoubtedly a lasting psychological impact. Her story would probably be too fantastic to believe had it not been the first of a series of violent, gruesome, and often fatal attacks that would continue for four years. When it was all over, hundreds of eyewitnesses had actually seen this animal themselves, and well over 100 people were dead, mauled, their body parts cast asunder, sometimes partially consumed, and other times killed just for sport. The animal responsible for it all predates the convenience of the word cryptid, which was coined in the 1980s. Merriam-Webster only added it to the dictionary in late April of 2019, 255 years almost to the day after this first attack occurred. Their definition of cryptid is as follows. An animal, such as Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster, that has been claimed to exist but never proven to exist, Without the convenience of that word at their disposal, locals of what was formerly called the Gévaudan region of France began to simply refer to the terrifying creature as the Beast, or La Bête. Today, the English-speaking world refers to this astonishing legend by the globally infamous name, the Beast of Gévaudan. The French call it La Bête du Gévaudan. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. This animal is a monster whose father is a lion. It remains open what the mother is. Dragoon Captain Jean-Baptiste Boulanger Duhamel, speculating on the origins of La Bête in January of 1765. Join us tonight as we attempt to unravel the mystery of the Beast of Gévaudan. And we're back, Monsieur Neri. Oh, bonjour. You Wait, that's a quote. Uh, uh, no, well, that was... Was that Truffaut from Close Encounters? Very good. Yeah. Wow. Well, Neri, Monsieur Neri. Monsieur yeah. Neri. And then you wonder, like, he, yes, he had a heavy accent, as Francois Truffaut does, but yes. uh, he didn't really need the translator, I don't think. No, he didn't. fun to have him. He there. was great in that movie. Yeah, Bob Balaban. Yeah. yeah. We are back, folks, and what a story we have tonight. Uh, wow. Uh, so speaking of which, and more on this in a minute, but tonight's show is not for the faint of heart and mm. maybe not for young kids either, so early warning there. 
But in other quick news, we are moving forward on getting ourselves onto additional platforms. So it's a good time to start following us on social media if you haven't already, because until we get our sea legs with videos and streaming and stuff, we're probably only going to be quietly announcing these appearances on yeah. social media for a minute. So no, we're working behind the scenes on those, working pretty hard, but tr trying to get the regular production done as well. But yeah, we're going to like just quietly inch those out. So if you haven't done it yet and you're on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, uh, that's a good place to keep an eye on things, what we're doing here. And Patreon, of course. And as we said on our last show, Tess is running the stories portion of Instagram for us now, and it's pretty great. She's knocking it out of the park. Yeah, it's, I, I love to check it out. Uh, right now, she's doing a new story every day. I don't know how long she's going to keep doing that, but it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I check in every night. I don't want it to burn out, but it yeah. is a lot more and a lot more fun than uh, what we were doing with it. Yes, yes which was nothing. And uh, but, but by the way, conversely, I run our Twitter account personally, mm. and I find it one of the easiest ones to send a quick message out. So keep an eye on that, too, if you're trying to figure That's out true. where we are, what we're up to. And for those of you on Facebook, we have both a main page there for the show, as well as a very active and interactive private Facebook group. If you're wary of those kinds of groups, and we wouldn't blame you, this one is exceptionally well monitored by the mods. So trolls, mm -hmm. politics, and things that aren't astonishing and fun won't be found there. I mm -hmm. guess, ironically, it's a safe space <laughs> to talk about <laughs> scary things. And uh, don't try to copyright that. I already did. Just now you did. Yeah, yeah. I have a copyright hotline to our trademark lawyer. You do have a button on your phone, I noticed. Yes, yeah, I got a button. I just press this button and he, the, the lawyer, he yeah. loves me because I keep copywriting stuff. Right. I, I just hit option uh, two and the little TM comes up. And, yeah. Uh, bang. That's there you go. Bang. Yeah. So it's trademarked. No, you know what? We, I know it's uh, silly now maybe, but you know, we always wanted this to be by the nature of talking things paranormal because people don't do it because they get laughed at and they get their eye rolls. Yes, that's right. So, you know, we understand what it's like to have a fun place to go where we're all friends and we can talk about this stuff and nobody thinks you're a crazy person. Okay, well, seriously, folks, if you're finding yourself missing us on one of our dark weeks, we just made an appearance on a show our good friend Max Kreitzer does called The Story Of to talk about, believe it or not, the Chris Harrison controversy. Wait a second, just a little pause. I know people are gasping. Jaws are <laughs> dropping. They can't believe it. Well, uh, so there you go, you Bachelor fans. This was a super off-the-cuff conversation and a lot of fun, and it's out right now. So just look for The Story of Podcast by Max Kreutzer, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll have a link to that episode in our show notes as well. Yes, and, and the word podcast is not part of the title. It's just The Story of. And uh <laughs> Somebody else tried to put up a show with the same name, so we, we've oh. got to look for his. It's got a little icon of a VHS tape. And, oh, by the way, Forrest yapped yeah. so much after I had uh. to leave. I had to sign off because I had a family thing. <laughs> he forced Max into a two-parter. Shocker. Yeah. Yeah, that, everyone no. that invites us on, they always wind up doing their first multi-parters. So uh, hey, that, that uh, one's not up uh, yet, but it, that part two, it'll be up soon, so. Yeah, uh, the podcast we love. Remember, we yeah. we filled up two of his hard drives, I think. Yeah. That was you and me, though, going back and forth on it. But no, we had a great time just talking, and, and that should demonstrate how much fun this episode would be, because Max and I just stayed on the line and just chatted. So yeah, uh, we, had a, awesome. we had a good old time. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to hear what you talked about. I, I hope I hope <laughs> I don't wake up and find out that we're canceled after that one airs. So. No, it was mostly bad-mouthing you, so it'll be fun. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. No one's going to cancel yeah. you for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, here you go. Let's get to tonight's show. Well, before we start, we should give a little, what are we going to call these now, Scott? A gruesome warning? Yeah, and I almost had John do this for us. John's our announcer, folks, and I feel like maybe we haven't given him enough credit. He gets mm. a, a name drop in the closing credits, but John Boland, who's been doing our opening announcements for years now and works for free. 
uh, <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> and he's a professional uh, mixer. So I just send him yeah. this stuff and he records it. And he, we've built all kinds of warnings with him, medical ones and that sort of stuff. You guys have heard him over the years, but this warning is different. And I just, this is a heavy case. I wasn't expecting the gruesome, horrific nature of this case when we took this on for this week. Well, it depends on how much you describe, because certainly the surprise that I had, well, I guess I wasn't. It's just when you start to read the details about what happened and you go through the timeline, it is the making of a classic horror film. Yeah. Even if you don't get into monsters and the supernatural. Just the terror that was experienced by that region is a little bit mind-blowing. So this is perhaps not a good subject for very young children whose parents would like them to sleep through the night. Yeah, there's some gruesome deaths in here, and we will be talking about them. Just go ahead and turn it off now if you don't want to hear about it or share it with— <laughs> Well, we're not uh, going to go into the specifics. Well, no, but there, we're going to be discussing decapitation, uh, methodology of the attacks in some cases, because it's pertinent to understanding— how different this creature was from just your run-of-the-mill cryptid that hardly anybody saw and people thought they saw it in the shadows. This Mm. stuff happened. A lot of people were attacked, and the method of attack didn't always make sense for a wild animal. Well, before we get started here, I guess uh, we're going to talk about the sources as we go along, but I listed them all here, so I guess we can just kind of rattle them off. One of them is uh, I was just made aware of tonight by you that there's a website dedicated to. Le Bête de Gévaudan. Nice. So, you know, it's going to only get better. I, I've listened to that pronunciation about a thousand times. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, you're so. doing good. And I, I took four years of French, but it was uh, two in high school and two <laughs> in early college, and I don't remember anything. Yeah, so the websites in, in French, we're going to talk about that a little bit more and, and actually read from it because it's the more dramatic account actually taken from the accounts of the time that somebody has spent a, uh, you know, somebody who was fascinated grew up in the area, whose father was from the area, and yeah. was told these tales as a child and remembered them ever since. And with some friends who are authors and researchers has put this website together, and it's great to read. But that's where it gets really gruesome is when you read the details like that. And it's been translated by a friend, I believe, uh, into English, but of course uh, written in the French language. Could use a Squarespace update. Yeah, it says right on the page, last update was 2012, so... <laughs> Even before that, <laughs> Squarespace, yes. it'll take care of all your problems there. But anyway, <laughs> it's really interesting. It's the dramatic account, and uh, I recommend it highly for everybody who's interested in this story. Another one that we're going to pull sources from tonight, one is a January 2002 scientific report from Nina. That's not 99 Love Balloons. <laughs> this is a different Nina. That's Nena, wasn't it? Was that <laughs> yeah, with that's an e? Nena, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, this is a Norwegian scientific paper, or at least it was under the auspices of the Norsk Institute for Nature Forskning. Good Lord. And uh, actually, well, I, I had my friend Arnie, my, my, one of my best friends, who lives in Seattle, and he's of Norwegian descent, like a lot of people in Seattle are. Yeah. And uh, I thought it'd be fun if he did a pronunciation. So we're going to have Sarah maybe stick this in there if she can translate the iMessage recording I had him make. So here it is. Norsk Institute for Naturforskning. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, so I thought it would be fun to hear my friend Arnie on the show. I've been promising to get him on in some capacity. And he also taught me a dirty Norwegian limerick about cheese, but I'm not going to repeat that one here. (laughs) 
But you Norwegians know what it is. Well, you know, you could have just said the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. Yes, that's what it is. You didn't have to go with it. <laughs> but I, I just want to read this from their webpage real quick. That's an independent foundation for nature research and research on the interaction between human society, natural resources, and biodiversity. Yes. And uh, here's the title, The Fear of Wolves, A Review of Wolf's Attacks on Humans. And the reason that it's so important is that it's a pretty solid scientific account of what really happens with wolf attacks over the years, for the past hundred years, a a pretty definitive account. And there are some conclusions that really figure into the logic and probability of this case. Yes. And just to be absolutely clear, even though we're mentioning a wolf right here at the top, it's not a foregone conclusion that a wolf was even involved. You're going to hear a lot of stories about what people think this uh, particular cryptid might have been. And that's the usual suspect for it. So it's good yep, to take a yep. look at wolves and their behavior, which we'll be doing. Indeed. So another source is an article in the SmithsonianMag.com website called When the Beast of Gévaudan Terrorized France by Lorraine Boissonneau from June 26, 2017. Another article will be a blog article from the National Geographic Society newsroom dated September 27, 2016, titled Solving the Mystery of the 18th Century Killer, Beast of Gévaudan, by Carl Hans Tacke. You're going to hear a lot of Google Translate uh, getting this Well, and Forvo.com. <laughs> Forvo. that's, that's our saving yeah. grace. At some point, I just stop, and I'm going to wing it, and hopefully you won't notice the difference unless you're a French speaker. And then uh, we don't get too many critical emails from French speakers, so I'm appreciative of that. Yes, indeed. Not even our French-Canadian friends. So that is one, another article here. This is pretty interesting. Uh, Carl Hans Taka is also the author of a book titled The Gévaudan Tragedy, The Disastrous Campaign of a Deported Beast. And the Kindle edition is only $4.95, where it's free with Kindle Unlimited. So uh, we'll have a link to that, of course, and be sure to pick up a copy. Yeah, I got to tell you guys, I I read this book front to back. It is really compelling, super interesting. So if you wind up being more interested in this story after we finish, definitely pick that up or pick up a hard copy of it. It's something that is good to have in the collection. Absolutely. And and this one, uh, we pulled a few things, but we didn't really get too into it. But it's an interesting angle. And it's another article by science writer and contributor to Forbes.com, David Brisson. And his article is titled, How an Ancient Volcano helped a man-eating wolf terrorize 18th century France. And that has an interesting angle on it because it's from the geology of the place. So he is a freelance geologist and is aware of the area, I think, very well and of the story. So his take is perhaps why this beast was not caught successfully right away, if at all. But let's get to this beast. What is this beast and its legend we shall speak of? Well, this is the beast of Gévaudan. That's my best Forvo. You're doing good. Yeah, I'm impressed. Gévaudan. Yeah. yeah, well. <laughs> Gévaudan. <laughs> that's going to slip. That's going to slide. And uh, yeah, yeah, it changes like all a, around. Like, we always start out really yeah. good right out of the gate. And then by later, it's, it's Gévaudan. <laughs> <laughs> it's the like the wavering sink on a, on a bad Zoom call. Well, in French, it's Le Bête du Gévaudan. Or if you're, quote unquote, ugly Americans like us, well, well, like me, because Scott here studied French for four years, you'd like to pronounce it as the Beast of Gavaudan. Gavaudan. Gavaudan, because yes. that's how it looks like it's spelled. Well, the Beast of Gévaudan refers to a spree of mysterious, horrific, and gruesome attacks on the residents of the former province of Gévaudan, located in a highland region of south-central France known as the Majorie des Mountains. 
as it was described by eyewitnesses at the time and some survivors, during the years of 1764 and 1767, some type of unknown canine-like predator described as something like a large wolf or dog or a hybrid of the two, and one or more of them, or a pack of them, was savagely attacking these villagers. Like usual canine predators, mostly going for their necks and ripping their throats out. And some victims had their heads gnawed off or were found partially eaten. Not like usual canine predators, that part. No, there are some major differences here, but uh, that is the very general description of what happened in Gévaudan. But as we'll see, a lot of people don't think they were canine-like at all. That's maybe the closest and most uh, relatable, graspable thing to describe it as. As news of the attack spread at the time, people from all walks of French society joined in the hunt to stop this monster, or monsters. That includes royal huntsmen, soldiers, noblemen, and ordinary peasants had joined the chase. News of the beast had even reached Versailles, and large sums of money and resources had been allocated by the Kingdom of France to stop this man-eater. But why such a fuss or effort for a handful of peasants killed in the mid-1700s, you ask? Because it wasn't just a handful of people. Get this. Now, there are, of course, widely varying estimates of the number of victims, both contemporary accounts at the time and modern-day estimates, but some sources say as many as 60 to 100 adults and children were killed, with over 30 people injured. And another source says over 100 were killed in Gévaudan in the three-year period. And one report from 1987 estimates that at least 500 people had been killed and 49 injured for a total of 610 beast attacks, with 98 of those killed having been partially consumed. We're talking about a lot of people in three years. Yeah, and at times this thing was killing daily and sometimes multiple, or attacking at least, multiple victims a day. And on top of that, according to the author Taka, who we were talking about earlier and his book we'll be referring to tonight, and there's probably a lot of cases that didn't even make any records or registrations because people just disappeared. They were consumed yeah. entirely, missing 411 style, just completely yeah. consumed. And at yeah. that point, it's just like, well, I wonder where... Wonder where Fred went. Or Francois, yeah. to be Francois, precise. yes, exactly. <laughs> he got eated. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of people and, and sadly a lot of children. Yeah. An unbelievable sorrow I can imagine that uh, families were facing. Yeah. Well, these were harsh times. We're going to understand the circumstances of France during this time as well, because that plays into this story. I may be being a little bit flip here at the top of this, but this is, this is a very yeah. dark story on the whole. It's yeah. a bit of gallows humor on my part, I think, trying to deal with it. Because like I said, I was, I was shocked at yeah, the details yeah. of this story. So, Well, I, I know. And, and uh, it was a long time ago. And, you know, that's how you, you look at this or how we all do. But you, we do take a look at the humanity of it at the time and try and put ourselves in that situation and, and what they must have gone through. Because one of the knocks on them is, uh, are people just exaggerating this? Was it that bad? These are uneducated folks, so maybe it wasn't all that bad. Well, let's take a look at the location. Gévaudan was back then a province in what is now the modern-day département of Lozère. So a province in France being similar to a historical county in England, or somewhat similar to a U.S. county. France was organized into provinces, or provinces, provinces, 
<laughs> the plural that I didn't study my uh, my my gerunds. I mean, I'm just making this stuff up here with <laughs> uh, French. Hey. I just know it's very complicated. Yes, yes. Well, if you uh, know what a gerund is, you're ahead of a lot of people. <laughs> I don't. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just putting myself out there. Please, no emails. Just don't dangle uh, your participle. <laughs> <laughs> Always good advice. <laughs> well, uh, Provences, in Pro, uh, Provence, this is the organization of areas and territory uh, France was under until March of 1790, when the département system was implemented. And Gévaudan was also part of the modern-day département of Haute-Loire, and also being located in the Marjoride Mountains and Plateaus of the Massif Central region in the middle of southern France. Beautiful country, just unbelievable. Stunning. But if you look this area up online, I have not been there. I have been to France, but not to this region. Right. I just couldn't believe how gorgeous this area is. It really is amazing. That plays into it too because of the background of this story and the the fairy tale nature of it. Well, the attacks themselves were reported to have occurred over an area that was roughly 56 by 50 miles or about 90 by 80 kilometers. So quite a range of territory for a predator and the hunters searching for it, or them, but perhaps less formidable for several predators to cover that amount of ground. Now, Scott, did you find out what an average territory of a wolf uh, would be or a pack of wolves would be? Does this seem like a lot to you? I found an interesting website. It has a little section on this. It's called wolfworlds.com. We'll have a link to this, <laughs> very of cool. course. Yeah, this is interesting. It says here, by nature, wolves are very territorial animals. Also, I, I do want to say something else, uh, by the way. Mm-hmm. We're not here tonight to vilify wolves. We're not doing no, the no, Peter no, no. Benchley, like Jaws situation, <laughs> which he felt guilty about for the rest of his life. Wolves are cool animals. We're super into them. And in fact, I, a very dear friend of mine has a wolf dog hybrid, is an amazing creature. Oh, so did our family. Did I tell you about that? We I had feel a, like we uh, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah he, he was uh, He was either a half or a quarter uh, Siberian husky and wolf. And the... You wouldn't know what to look at him because, of course, he had the the blue eyes and the reddish fur. Yeah. The reddish and white fur. The only thing that would remind you of it is when he would get around other dogs. Yeah. They would kowtow to him. Oh, It yeah. was weird. He like, was the they big would boss. Just like, like, well, he didn't do anything. He wasn't, he was one of the most gentle dogs I've ever been around and the most gentle hand-feeding dog. Yeah. He just had this vibe. And so the other dogs would be friendly towards him, but like wary of him it's funny yeah. they would kind of they would part the room as yeah. he walked by yeah and so i don't know what they were picking up on but uh, i think it was that part of the wolf so what we're here to do tonight is give you the real skinny on this the real dope about what really happens with wolf attacks the percentages and the uh, the probabilities of this case being a wolf attack case wolves are people too well they can have <laughs> a, a home range from 33 to 6200 square kilometers that's 12.7 okay. to up to 2400 square miles but it depends on the type of wolf and where they reside on average it's about 35 square kilometers or 13 and a half square miles Okay. And it says here, this is quite a bit of territory for a single wolf pack to take over. That is why many of them overlap with others. It is seldom that these packs of wolves will come into contact with each other. It is yeah. estimated that 50% of the territory of a wolf pack is covered daily. They aren't idle for very long, wow. making it hard to track where they are actually at. The low number of wolves, as well as their movements, make it harder for experts to keep a close eye on them for research and observation purposes. Yeah. They do have an area of their territory that is considered to be the core. It is often in the middle of the radius of their range or very close to it. 
This is where up to 50% of the time of a given wolf pack will be spent. This is the location where they feel very safe, so it is common for the dens where the mothers give birth to be close to the core as well. They give warning signals of where they will be, including loud howls and barking. Generally, the wolf packs will avoid being around each other unless they are fighting for food that may be in short supply. When that occurs, these wolf packs may engage in battles with each other in order to continue to have their claim on a given location as well as the food within it. Wow. Well, that's interesting about wolf packs, Scott, because that's one theory that happened to this region because of so many attacks happening. But what about the lone wolf? Because that's another factor that is part of this legend in that people didn't see a wolf pack per se. So what is your research? Tell me about lone wolves. The first thing I think of is I'm pretty sure that John Travolta had a jacket in one of his <laughs> movies did. that he said did, lone yes. wolf on the back. Yeah. Was it Greece? I yeah, can, yes, it was wasn't, something. I can't remember. Uh, I think so. I think so. <laughs> well, right. according to Wikipedia, lone wolf is an animal that acts independently or generally lives or spends time alone instead of with a group. It's normally well, I, a pack I knew animal. That. I could have guessed that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. These are wolves that have left or been excluded from their pack and are therefore described as lone wolves. The page goes on to indicate that generally these are older female wolves driven from oh, the pack. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're driven out by sort of the structure. It's a wolf ronin, a ronin wolf. Yeah. Who's been shunned by their samurai. And it indicates too that it's difficult for them to remain lone wolves very long because it's harder to hunt, harder to bring oh, yeah. down prey, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's not a great situation. Okay, well, keep that in mind, uh, dear audience, as we describe this story, because we'll see if that makes sense here, because the lone wolf scenario is one mundane peg that we're trying to uh, uh, pound into a round hole here. So, uh, oh, it was not uh, fit with the story. It was Sorry. Laverne yes. Shirley. It's uh, Michael <laughs> McKean. It. It's Michael McKean. Yes, jacket, there you go. They wolf. screwed up and didn't put the L on his jacket, so it just said one wolf. Remember that? <laughs> mm-hmm, and then uh, Laverne mm-hmm. had to put the L. That's she right. sewed the L onto his jacket. That's yeah, right. So, because yeah. uh, uh, a wolf being uh, back then just a uh, a very handsy guy, you could say. Television history interwoven with the beast of Gévaudan. And explained <laughs> all here uh, to uh, little effect. Okay, yeah. let's get back to this article here because it describes what the place was like at the time, and still is to a great degree. From the SmithsonianMag.com article, as we said, June 26, 2017, titled when the beast of Gévaudan terrorized France by Lorraine Boissonneau. She quotes another author when describing what the landscape was like at the time. This author is J.M. Smith, a historian and author of Monsters of Gévaudan, The Making of a Beast. And Smith describes the province as being wild and mysterious itself by saying, quote, it had the reputation for being a remote, isolated backwater where the forces of nature had not been full tamed where the forests were indeed enchanted. It's fascinating. It's powerful. It's scary. It's sublime. End quote. So it's an enchanted place anyway. Rain Boissonneau goes on to describe it being like the setting for a grim fairy tale, complete with a supernatural-like monster. And she states that in the three years of attacks, there were nearly 300 victims, and the legacy of the event would have long-lasting effects, which obviously it did. We're, we're still talking about it. And these beastly horrors wouldn't be the only suffering the people of the region would experience during this era in French history. So let's talk about what this beast looked like. Scott, can you describe it? Well, Tess wrote up a description for us in River, which is where we have the astonishing research core parked. And as she was, you know, is our head of research and also a mm-hmm, producer mm-hmm. on the show. But so mm-hmm. she always likes to get these, these things uh, lined up for us. And this is interesting. 
Although described as wolf-like, many eyewitnesses note that this was something quite different than a typical wolf. It was very large in size, between a calf and a horse. The color was reddish-gray, that comes up over and over, had Mm -hmm. large, sharp teeth, and a massive tail. It was also said to have a black stripe running down its back and talons on its feet. Mm. Its hunting style seemed to be a typical ambush hunter. Wounds found on bodies were typically found on the heads and limbs. Allegedly, 16 of its victims were reportedly decapitated. At least. At least. Attacks occurred during the night or early in the morning. And in the case of these decapitations, in some cases, the heads were found uh, up to 200 paces away, and in some cases, they weren't found at all. Mm. Now, here's another description uh, from the website that we mentioned earlier at the top of the show, which we'll have a link to. It's www.labetdujevoudin.eu slash en, if you need to read it in English. And this is the website we were talking about at the beginning of the show that seems to have been written by a gentleman who grew up in the area and heard stories about this from his father and was very taken with it. So he built this website. And listen to this description of the beast here, which later is what it came to be called. They just left off the Jevoudan. So it was Mm -hmm. referred to colloquially and in a lot of cases as just the beast or la bête. It was sure now that the beast was not a wolf. Too many people had seen it and gave the same description. It was a fantastic animal, sized like a calf or a donkey. It had reddish hair, a large head similar to a pig, the mouth always gaping, short and perched ears, white and large breast, and some said that its hind legs were the hooves of a horse. Okay. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) some of the things that are left off here are that it had a very thick tail. Uh, One witness said the tail was as thick as an arm. And another thing that you and I have talked about while doing our research here and uh, putting the outline together was that the tail had a tassel on the end of it, which is not typical of a wolf. That's more of a, for me anyway, a feline feature, potentially. It is. Yeah. A lion. That's another uh, idea. But what we're seeing here is some kind of weird chimera again. Yeah. I'm not going to jump the gun on this, but it is sounding more fantastical by the descriptions of people that uh, survived it. And a lot of people saw this in the field, remember? Because they're chasing this thing. Yeah, so, that's right. But, but here's the thing. Keep in mind, this is just a preliminary description. We'll see later how this impression of the beast changed over time and with more encounters. The animal gets a little more hard to classify, like with the Carl Linnaeus's taxonomy definitions as, as we know them. And it certainly adds a lot more to the mystery and a paranormal angle, I believe. I am Michael Camp, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, Scott, let's talk about the history of the attacks or the timeline of the attacks. And we start off with a discrepancy because there are several stories that go along with La Bette that are often told and retold, and some of the names stick with it. And then also there's some conflation between the stories. One of them, as you'll see here in the wiki entry, and a lot of these sources that the wiki entry on the Beast credits, I'm not sure are accurate, as I am not sure that this first attribution of this, uh, one of the more famous anecdotes, is correctly attributed to 
uh, Jean-Marie Vallée. It's actually definitely not correctly attributed. Okay. It's definitely a Wikipedia <laughs> page mistake. That. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We fall back on Wikipedia for summaries of things that we go deeper on with other sources, but we also try to keep an eye on it because it's, and it's, uh, sometimes it's not an intentional mistake. You know, it's, there's no, no, a no. lot it, of information it, being yeah. put together here, but there is a false attribution here that's cited back to a Smithsonian article, which is also one of our primary sources. And mm-hmm. that Smithsonian article doesn't even have the story incorrectly like it's mentioned on yes. Wikipedia. So it, right, it doesn't work right. there. It's not like Smithsonian made a mistake and someone put it in the Wikipedia no. page. Somehow it got lost in translation as it got moved over to the Wikipedia page. It's not uh, in- intentionally misleading unless it's the Nazi bow page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <which would laughs> yeah. Intentionally Go- mislead you. Intentionally mislead. Or, or the Kelly Hopkinsville situation. Or that one yeah. too. Yeah. So <laughs> the idea here though is that what we do know, there will be a statement in uh, any of these entries, like especially Wikipedia. Uh, we'll check out the source for that and see if it lines up with some of our, the same source materials or if it's something new and see what they have to say. We don't have time to do that all the time, but sometimes like this, this didn't make sense because the dates don't line up, although the name's the same, but the anecdotes don't line up. But what we do know is that there are two famous anecdotes or legendary anecdotes that come with this story. So the one here is about the first attack that happens, the first non-fatal attack, but possibly the first attack or appearance of the beast where somebody survived and was able to describe it. And this first known attempted attack was on a young woman. And as you'll see in the, the wiki entry here, they listed as Marie-Jean Vallée, who was tending a herd of oxen in June of 1764 near the town of Langonier in eastern Gévaudan, also stated as the town of Saint-Fleur in the Auvergne by some sources. So again, some of the towns are mixed up and we're not really sure. But again, what we do know is that the anecdotes themselves remain somewhat intact, if not the names and the places and the Yeah, dates. the names are getting mixed up in the anecdotes. And I, <laughs> I'm going to fall back on Carl Hans Taka uh, with the Gévaudan right. tragedy. In his book, he has both of these stories in there. And he has the one in Saint-Fleur. Uh, that's April of 1764. Mm-hmm. And then that's the what he attributes it to be the first non-fatal attack. But then there is another really famous story of an attack that was repelled by a young right. woman named Valet and in 1765. So we're going to tell both those stories, but what we're saying is that they're incorrectly cited on the Wikipedia page. They're mixed up. They're mish- mashed together. Yeah. You'll know it if you know the story or learn the story with us in that in this first story where the beast is repelled, the story goes that the beast started to stalk this young woman, whoever she may be, and the dog she had there, they cowered and ran. They were frightened of the beast. However, the bulls in her herd had grouped around her and then charged it, driving it off. It attempted a second attack, but the bulls again drove it off, and this time it did not return. So what's interesting to note here is that the bulls formed a circle and protected her, and they're big, formidable beasts themselves, and they were able to drive off this, whatever this thing was. But it's the first instance of something strange trying to attack a human. Yes, and that's the story we shared in the cold open. Yes, it is. But again, this may not have been the first attack. Uh, Some sources differ. So the other one that goes on to claim this story uh, with the repelling cattle is also listed as happening in August 11th, 1765. And we know that that's not true because that's a year into these attacks. Yeah. And and Taka, Carlson Taka indicates that it took place in April of 1764, which would be pretty early if we're going by that. I, I think what's happening is that the waters have been muddied by the Wikipedia entry. I think because it's merging the dates and the people and mixing up 
two stories right. together like a right. uh, like they were in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> well, and people are like, we don't care. Keep going. Keep yeah. going. Keep going. <laughs> no, just keep going. <laughs> yes. I haven't re- I haven't recognized any of these French names you've been trying so hard to right, right. Uh, say correctly. So who cares? Just tell us about the creepy beast. Yes. Well, uh, it, it, this is what we're about to do. In this account here, though, one name that does, as you could say, bubble up in your smoothie of history is Marie-Jean Vallée. Her name definitely is remembered as somebody who bravely repelled this beast that killed so many. And Scott, why don't you read that anecdote from an Atlas Obscura article? This is a very uh, quick little telling of this story that's well done and also is corroborated by Taka's book. So we're able to cross-corroborate this particular version of this story. In a sworn testimony recorded in 1765, Antoine Bautern, who we'll talk about later, recounted Valet's story of her near-miss and attempt at killing the feared beast, which she described as looking like an unusually large dog. According to the account, Valet was crossing between branches of a river through a small wooded area when she turned to discover the beast immediately behind her. As it reared up for an attack, the young woman plunged a homemade spear she had been carrying into its chest. Injured but not dead, the beast raised a paw to the injury, crying out loudly, and then rolled off into the waters of the river. That story is on Atlas Obscura. The the primary contributor for that was Annetta Black, and it was edited by four other Obscura contributors. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. But that jives with the version of that story that Taka told in his book, and that is the legendary story. There's this statue of her plunging the spear into the beast's chest, much like Mel Gibson did, both in Braveheart and The Patriot, exact same stunt, twice, where he plants the spear in the ground and the horse jumps on it. I was like, really? You're going to do that twice? But yes, I digress. But it's it's Mm. the same thing, and the statue just looks amazing. It's so compelling. Whatever the story is, she got away, and now that's part of the legend of La Bête du Gévaudan. Well, whatever story is true here, or what actually really happened, whenever it occurred, Marie-Jean Vallée's successful defense against the beast would earn her a prominent place in the legend. What seems to be in agreement, though, is that the beast would claim its first victim a short time at the end of June in 1764, and that is when a 14-year-old shepherd girl named Jean Boulet was killed while tending her flock near the village of Saint-Étienne-des-Loups-de-Ré and the village of Les Ubox, also near Langonnier. And coming back to Marie-Jean Vallée, that story in Taka's book is connected to the other details you had about the cattle protecting her and the dogs running away. In Taka's book, that's an unnamed victim who Mm. is different from the encounter that Valet had with the spear that's immortalized Uh, with the statue. So it's a different point. Which one's first, you know, we just don't know. These things get confused, yeah. Not so much at the time because people knew who these people were of the village, okay? They're small villages. And uh, I know it's a big region of sorts, but people knew who these people were. Over the tellings and researching and the writers over the years, that story gets conflated with other ones. So I think elements of it are true, but whether they all happen to Marie-Jean Vallée, whether in, in June of the year previous in 1764, they happened August 11, 1765, we're not sure, or it depends on what version you read. Yeah, and one of the things that's interesting about the description that Taka talks about with this particular encounter, whether it was Valet or this other unnamed girl, is which is what he said, this person described the animal as having a very wide chest, a big head, short upright ears, and a long snout. Yeah. The tail was long and strangely thin. From the upper side of the head to the tip of the tail ran a dark stripe. That comes up over and over. 
the beast tried to break through the wall of the oxen or whatever the uh, the animals were that were protecting her, and her clothes were torn, but she remained uninjured. One yeah. important thing that uh, Taka also points out in his book is that at this time, cattle were much smaller. They're probably around seven or 800 pounds today. They're, uh, you know, 11, 1200 pounds easily, depending on what kind of thing it is. So when you think about mm-hmm. the comparisons to a cow, you have to think about the time period. So it's still a big creature, whatever this thing was, but right. the cow was a smaller animal at that point in time. Right. This was not the end of it. Certainly other victims would soon follow mostly women and children, sadly. A 15-year-old girl was killed by the beast a month later after the oxen event near the village of Puy-Laurent in the same area. And before she died, she described the animal as a horrible beast. The one aspect of the descriptions that I find puzzling too is that a lot of people said it was almost like a pig's head, a large fat head on this thing, long snout. Very weird description. And you have to... uh, assume, except these people know what their livestock looks like. They know what the animals in their area looks like. They've seen them all. Including wolves. Yeah, this is nothing like anybody had ever seen. That's why they had such trouble describing it. And uh, the other thing, uh, this is a trigger warning here, but uh, I might as well say this now. When you hear these killings, it's not that this thing snaps your neck and you're just lying on the ground in a beautiful repose. I mean, they found these young people utterly ripped up to shreds. And weirdly though, cheeks eaten, eyeballs eaten, the blood drained as if it were drank from them, hearts ripped out. Just the worst condition you can imagine finding a loved one in or somebody you knew. And that really amped up the terror of these attacks. So people you can imagine were in a frenzy to stop this figure out what was doing this and and kill it. At the same time, they have to eat. So people are still tending their flocks. You have to tend to the animals. And so they were still out in the fields because you had little choice back then. But I just wanted to express how horrific these attacks were, but also what makes them so baffling and that this seemed far beyond the attack of a hungry animal because there were wolf attacks. People knew what wolf attacks looked like. Certainly their livestock were sometimes attacked by predators. They knew what that looked like. This was far different. Uh, The other strange thing is that, not to spoil anything here, but I did not come across any or any accounts that really talked about this thing taking the livestock, which you would imagine it went for first. Now, we're going to talk about this in our conclusions because I think it's a valid point here to bring up. But this thing seemed to go after the people specifically. Humans targeted them, stalked them. Not so much the animals, because again, I didn't come across any any of these anecdotes or stories where that was the case, like a uh, a farmer or a, a shepherd came across uh, some uh, eaten animals and that put them in danger or they were trying to stop this. It came after people specifically. Yeah, from Taka's book, it was exclusively the people that it went after. These things keep going on here. The accounts just keep racking up and it's so frequent that people almost can't keep track of them. In one case here, the near the village of Laval in the province of Dauphine on September 8th, 1764. David Brasson, in the article on Forbes.com, he says 1762. I, I think that's a, mis, uh, a typo there. But uh, he says, a young boy from the Yali family goes missing while herding a flock of sheep. People are still having to send their kids out to work. And sadly, only his partially eaten remains were found. And he was immediately buried. So... That's the other thing is that it's not all about food either. Whatever this thing is seems to be killing for pleasure. 
So another thing to keep in mind here, animal tax were nothing new and familiar to the people in the region at the time, like I said, but according to the Barsan article, so many attacks were occurring in the short span of time, now the authorities have to act. This may have been forgotten because, come on, they're peasants, uh, what do the noble people uh, care about them? Uh, then maybe they're helping out with the land and the food. Another item to keep in mind, Bersan lists different names for the places, as we said before, of the uh, of the events. And so we're mentioning both in the descriptions. But this might be due to the changing of the 18th century place names with modern designations, because he seems very familiar with the locales. Yeah, in a lot of cases, it just it goes for the kill, and then there's not other damage. And in other cases... The victims are, as we said, decapitated, which there doesn't appear to be any reason for. It, wolves, in fact, won't do that. That takes a lot of work. Right. And the only thing that they could surmise was the possibility of people coming apart as they are dragged through the woods mm. or to different locations. But again, this is still an unusual occurrence. So there's yeah. uh, some debate as to why that was even going on. It's also not like other scavengers are coming in, and, and uh, that sometimes happens with an old kill. Over time, of course, people know when somebody doesn't come home that evening and they go out searching for them. So these are discovered right away. Well, we're going to uh, read a lot and, and pull from the website, as we discussed before, the Beast of Gévaudan uh, website. Of course, there's a site dedicated to the beast, and it's pretty good. So keep in mind, yes, it's been translated, I think, by a friend. So, But it's dramatic. It gives you more the feel of the time and the experience of it, which is important because you have to put yourself in there. This isn't just a story that happened in the late 1700s. This was a real life thing that a lot of people had to go through. Well, the creator of the site, I think, is David Galson. It was hard to find anybody who uh, was attributable to the creation of the site. Other than he gives us the story of his father, who to me looks like a great guy uh, in, in history. He was a pilot. He looked like the aviator to me in The Little Prince. Yes, he did. Were, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had kind of a similar story too. Yeah. There was a thorough listing of all the victims that were mostly recorded. And I thought he summed it up very well. And so this is what he starts off when he talks about the summary of all the cases, which, of course, we don't need to read all of them to you. You get the idea. But he says, in this morbid listing, I take into account all attacked persons, whether directly killed, bitten, or scratched, or indirectly, only present in an attacked group. So some people were attacked in groups of humans, which is odd also for wolves. Usually they'll go after a lone person. But some people, uh, this beast attacked, were in groups. And so some people weren't directly attacked. Uh, somebody in the group was. And also, this is weird. Some people were attacked several times. As he says, it happened. Can you imagine, like, you, you live through one of them, and then a couple of weeks later, you get attacked again. I, this is starting to sound more like a werewolf story to me. This is the summary that David Galsan sums up here. So for 240 attacks, that's what he lists total, 112 dead. 53 wounded, 75 people ended up safe. I guess they they got away. He says, uh, or the website note here is, this was updated in July 2010. During three years, the efficacy of the beast was high. 50% of the attacks resulted in death. Of 100 people attacked, 46.2% of the attacks resulted in death. 22.3 in wounds, and 31.5% were safe. If one excludes the people that were rescued rapidly, the number of unharmed victims is close to zero, and the rate of mortal attacks is frightening, more than 80%. The worst period started in December of 1764 and ended in June 1765. 
So the summary goes on to say, one should bear in mind that the 240 attacks are those reported in the parish registers and in the minutes or via narratives passed by trustful people and collected by the abbot Porcher. So these were recorded by the church, the only authority in the area uh, a lot of the time for these villagers. So these were statements recorded by educated people. But it is also sure, he goes on to say, that many other attacks were never mentioned, either by some people's will or because it was not possible to transcribe them. So these are just the reported attacks. There may have been a lot more. And also close calls where people were just like, I don't want to talk about this. No, I just want to forget about this. I, I saw something weird. I escape with my life. I'm done with this. Because there was also possibly a supernatural angle, like the skinwalker. You don't talk about it because it draws attention to you. Yeah, so here's another account from that website. It says, in October, a peasant from Juliange called Jean-Pierre Porcher, one of the abbots documenting everything, mm-hmm. and was putting into order some uh, bundles in his barn. <laughs> Keeping in mind, this is translated. The dusk was coming. The snow covered the countryside. All of a sudden, a shadow goes through the narrow window of the warehouse. Porcher is gripped by a kind of terror. He takes his shotgun, stations himself in front of the stable's dormer, and sees in the street of the village, in front of the water spout, a monstrous animal such as he had never seen. It is the beast, it is the beast, he said to himself. Although very courageous, he was shaking so much he could barely hold his weapon. However, after crossing... He shoulders, aims, and fires. The beast falls, gets back on its feet, shakes its head standing still, and looks around furiously. (laughs) Porcher fires again. The beast shouts out, bends its legs, and escapes, making, quote, a noise like two people breaking up after a fight. That night, Porcher was convinced that unless there was a miracle, all the inhabitants of Gévaudan were doomed to be eaten. This guy unloads on it with two shotgun blasts. Yeah. And uh, it, it gets up. away. Yeah. This was not the only time. This happened over and over again. This starts to make people, as we say, no effect. This starts to freak people out. This thing, if it were just a big wolf, any kind of animal, should go down after being shot a few times. This happened over and over again. And, and by this point, people are wondering what is going on here. A lot of people have seen this thing. A lot of people have been attacked. A lot of people have been so mutilated that it's mind-boggling how vicious this thing was. So to give you an idea, towards the end of 1764, a local newspaper characterized the events thusly. A ferocious beast of unknown type, coming from who knows where, attacks the human species, killing individuals, drinking their blood, feasting on their flesh, and multiplying its carnage from day to day. Hunters who are in pursuit have neither been able to stop it because it is more agile than they, nor lure it into their traps because it surpasses them in cunning, nor engage in combat when it presents itself to them because its terrifying appearance weakens their courage, disturbs their vision, sets their hands shaking, and neutralizes their skill. This is the beast from Alien. Yeah. It it outsmarts them. Yeah, it doesn't fall for any traps. This thing's smart, too. There's something, uh, according to these reports, is going on here other than just a hungry animal in the wild. But there are other cases like that, right, Scott, in India, we're going to talk about in our conclusions. Yes. Well, by December, because of the frequency of the attacks, with many seeming to have taken place at the same time as the other ones in different locations, 
there were rumors that there could be a pair of beasts or several beasts acting on their own. Some reports at the time claimed that the beast had a partner or was with its offspring. So listen to this description also from the website. It seemed the beast could be everywhere at once. In the same day, it was in places separated by six to seven miles. It liked to stand up and do some clowning, looking like it was, quote unquote, happy as a Larry. That must be a French term, a yeah, <laughs> French I expression. I don't know what it means, <laughs> uh, but it's funny. I'm going to start using it. Yes, it um, <laughs> but, but it goes on here. And it seemed to have no viciousness sometimes. If it was in a hurry, the beast would cross the rivers in two or three jumps. And it was seen walking on the water without getting wet. Someone assured that he heard the beast laugh and speak. Usually, a mother would scold and threaten her child with the beast. And it would lay unexpectedly its hooks on the windowsills, gazing arrogantly at the sought-after baby. Moreover, it rarely devoured the corpse of its victims, contenting itself with tearing it, sucking its blood, scalping its head, and taking away the heart, the liver, and the intestines. Oof, I, this is a horror movie, but here's the other thing. It's like, this is starting to sound like Skinwalker Ranch. It really is. These encounters, in a lot of ways, they're even more chilling in terms of the nature of the attacks. But what is really right. similar is this uh, supernatural quality that this thing seems to have and, and the immortality, the ability to be in several places at once yes. and the intelligence level of it. Because right. it seems to avoid traps. It understands what they're trying to do to catch it and seems yeah. to be one step ahead of them which right. is pretty impressive for a canine or a feline or whatever this unknown cryptid creature is. Well, and of course, you can say, look, these are very educated people. They couldn't read. This is uh, the 1760s, and uh, everyone's just making up a story because there's nothing else going on in the village, and they're having a good time with it. It's like, I would argue then that this was taken seriously because so many people are dying, that... Yes, maybe they're exaggerating. Maybe they're uh, just scared, and uh, these are flights of fancy with them. Their imaginations are running wild. But some of the descriptions are so curious that I'm not going to say that it's impossible to make up, but they're just weird. It's a very weird thing going on here that doesn't fall into natural predation. So we're going to leave it at that for the moment. Well, as we said before, what are the contemporary circumstances going on here? Because this happens in a time and a place, very specifically in history, where the historical circumstances, the socio-economic, the political circumstances are playing a factor in this, and it affects the hunt for this beast. Well, aside from that newspaper account we just read, what were the societal circumstances for the people living in the region and for France as a whole. We're now going to turn again to the SmithsonianMag.com article uh, titled When the Beast of Jaboudon Terrorized France by Lorraine Boissonneau. And she does a great job of summarizing the contemporary circumstances. So what's more, uh, Boissonneau states that in three years' time, the beast or the beasts had attacked nearly 300 people. But these monstrous killings weren't the only awful hardships for the people of the Jaboudon province. In 1764, the Seven Years' War, which lasted from... 1756 to 1763, which was described as a global conflict and a struggle for global primacy between Britain and France, had only ended the prior year. France was in a terrible economic condition, having lost several key battles fighting the British and the Prussians. 
King Louis XV had also lost Canadian territories along with numerous overseas colonial possessions. Boissonneau's assertion was that France as a nation was downtrodden, in disarray, and needed a morale boost. And the stopping of this beast would provide a common foe and cause that the country could unite against and rally around. France at this point had something to prove. Yeah, and it's not just the leadership that this is happening for. It's the soldiers, the people that fought in the war. They're demoralized. They need a win, too. Everybody needs something to get behind and, and show that they can do the things they put their minds to. Well, the story of the Beast also gained nationwide notoriety because of a new style of reporting called Fête d'Hiver. Mm. Uh, I guess this translates to various facts. Yeah, uh, does, do you remember <laughs> what the definitions of those? I mean, I looked it up actually, but uh, you don't trust Google Translate sometimes. It, uh, yeah, no. It I, gives I, you a roundabout definition. I mean, it sounds a little bit like sensationalistic uh, journalism, yeah, which obviously right. sells papers. Uh, this method was employed by the founder of the Courier d'Avignon newspaper, Francois Morenis. Because the king censored most of the political news of the day, newspapers had to turn to other news to report, and entertaining news certainly helped in maintaining profits. So Fête d'Hiver could be considered an early form of true crime reporting Mm -hmm. where news of everyday incidents from small villages would be fascinating and relatable on a national scale. It seems like a feature that newspapers used to print and call the crime blotter. You remember that? Of course, yeah. Incidents of <laughs> yeah. crime and strangeness piqued the reader's curiosity. Right. So uh, Moranis's coverage of the beast and the killings made the story a national headline out of the bucolic rural tragedies that are happening, you might say. Yeah. And, you know, and it, the other thing that's happening is that in the big cities like Paris, they're not as easily given over to superstition and these wild right. goings on in the country. And so this is a, a way for them to live vicariously and see what, what is, what's happening out there yeah. to these folks that are the ne'er-do-wells. Because a lot of these, the peasants and the people that were subjected to this were, they couldn't read or write. They were right. impoverished. Right. Uh, they were having bad years, bad harvests. So they're already having a pretty bad time. And then this thing comes along and starts indiscriminately killing their children. Right. Right. Well, with this new national sensationalism about something the country would rather focus on than solving its post-war woes, and also speared by a rapidly increasing body count, mm. it was time for the authorities to step in. So the very first organized hunt takes place when a local government official named Etienne Lafont and a captain of the local infantry, Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, the aide-major des dragons de l'Agnon... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of ohms here. Uh, is, no, he was um, he was a dragoon. Uh, drag- he was in the, Br- yes, the British the, dra- yeah, the dragoons. Yes, yes of course. Um, don't let me break into Adam Sandler here. Okay. They were gathering a force together <laughs> to kill the beast. Right. Captain Duhamel claimed that they had marshaled a force of volunteers numbering thirty thousand men at its peak. That is a lot of people on the hunt. Yes, it is. That's a lot of people to feed. Yeah. yeah. So using military organization to coordinate the effort, Captain Duhamel ordered that poisoned bait be left along trails and some soldiers actually dressed as peasant women in order to possibly lure the beast because it was primarily attacking women and not just children, but women. And it very rarely attacked men, although it did attack older men sometimes, but it didn't have as much success with them. So these soldiers were putting on dresses and hiding out or pretending to be farming while they had weapons on them, hoping to draw this thing out. Oh, did you read uh, from the website? Again, this is why I liked going back to this and why we're reading from it. Uh, It describes some, I wouldn't say crazy 
maybe they're crazy ideas, but they were so desperate to trick this thing, stop it any way they could. Uh, there were ideas of like uh, 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 what, making a fake woman, uh, like a mannequin out of meat with the limbs, and then because it would go for the head, the head would have a just a bag of knives in it and, and uh, viper poisons. Yeah. yeah. Just like, maybe it'll attack this thing and poison itself. They're just thinking up anything that might possibly work because what's been going on so far has not worked. Uh, regular hunting methods. And people are dying every week. Yeah. And one of the things that Taka said was this thing never went for this. It never was tricked by the soldiers and ladies' clothing. And I guess apparently, according to Duhamel, when they did that, a bunch of volunteers also wanted to show up, uh, male volunteers, and wear dresses and get out in the fields too. But he banned that. He didn't want that to yeah. happen because he didn't want, if they didn't have success, he didn't want his soldiers to look bad. Right. It's getting complicated. So then... <laughs> Yeah. So, but the other thing about the poisoning, a lot of times what was happening there where they were finding domestic uh, dogs and poisoning them and then lacing their bodies with poison and leaving them out in the fields. In all these cases of the, you know, these horrible methods that they're trying to use to catch this horrible thing, it's not going for it. Yeah. And it's kind of surprising because even though some of them seem a little bit amateurish or half-witted, other ideas, you think it, it might trick it, and it just it's not taking the bait on any of it. If it just wants to feed, maybe right. it can smell the poison. Who knows? But yeah. uh, if it's just looking for food, you think it would go for the easy pickings. Right. At least, which could be just a live sheep or a live cow. Yeah, Jurassic Park style. <laughs> <laughs> just going for, yeah, why, why is it doing this? Well, again, uh, this is at a time when... Uh, there's economic troubles for France as a whole, but the reward for killing the beast, according to uh, historian Jean-Marc Morisot in his book, Les Bêtes du Gévaudan, was reported to have grown to an equal amount of a working man's yearly salary. This is a lot of money for these people that if you caught this thing, you're done for the year. Uh, yet, uh, uh, Taka had indicated in his book that the reward was 6,000 livres. Yeah. So, I, you know... A, a lot of money ago, back then, yeah. yeah. a lot of money back well, then. Well, I mean, it's crazy. So, Duhamel, Captain Duhamel, they, uh, he did kill a wolf, a big one. Uh, it says here on the website, for 18 pounds of prime. I'm not sure if that uh, is... Certainly, the wolf would weigh more than that. But even though he killed a big wolf and his outings there, the people were not relieved because they knew this beast was no ordinary wolf. Even as the people, the authorities, were trying to relieve them that it was, saying, no, we got it. This was a big wolf running around. We got it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. The people ain't buying it. They know it's not. And it didn't stop. So also from the website here, the, uh, the tales, the stories that were coming in that were being spread around, of course, as we said, a lot, I'm sure, were exaggerated. But uh, we see this every time, like with Velisca. I just got done uh, watching the series Night Stalker. This happens every time when there's a murder spree going around. It shuts everything down. People arm themselves. They lock their doors. They stop doing their usual things. Well, same thing here. As it says from the website, the country works were abandoned. Streets were deserted. People never got out alone and unarmed. Captain Duhamel and his dragoons were making daily beats, which I mean like a beat like a cop, rounds here. 1,200 peasants armed with shotguns, scythes, spears, and sticks escorted him. This is 1,200 people going out at a big party trying to stop this stuff. And as soon as there was a report of the beast being spotted, they would go hunt it out. They would immediately tear out after it. 
Monsieur de Lafont. Uh, he was the property manager in Mende. He was the local government representative here. Uh, Mr. de Moncon, general commander of the troops in Languedoc. Mr. de Morangy, who was a nobleman here. And the Mercier, who was the boldest hunter in Gévaudan, they all went out in the field. So that's what I was saying earlier at the beginning of this. You got uh, authorities, you got noblemen, you got peasants, you got uh, military people. Everybody's banging together because this is serious. They want to stop this thing. So uh, it, it broke down class walls. It's also something they can all get behind, a cause that unites them, which is what they needed. So people were glad to get out here because also these are people that they love and know who are being taken daily here. So uh, the news was being spread by criers, town criers who would uh, announce to all the peasants in the, in the villages there. These brave men, they got out on snowy country roads. They were determined and resolute to stop this monster here. So now, of course, as we said, the news reached Versailles. It was being talked about in the papers in Paris. It was the top of everyone's conversation everywhere in France. It even made it to England, which, of course, the English were making fun of them. Uh, there were stories that were coming back. The, the beast had killed uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of French troops and uh, was stopped by a kitten. So the king <laughs> said, okay, that's enough. That We're not going to be made fun of anymore. We got to do something about this. And even though uh, we're in disarray, I'm going to put some effort behind this. The king, Louis XV, gave a decree or, or instructions to Captain Duhamel, and he installed... Uh, him in his headquarters in Saint-Chalis, uh, and he gathered with them, as it says here, the most reputable gunmen of the country, of uh, these uh, different guys from Saint-Laurent or Lavigne, and then uh, he made it a tactic that he consisted of eight beats. So this is, this is how Duhamel went about this, and it differs from other people later on. But he's a military man, so uh, he had eight beats, which means eight searches uh, for the day. And as Scott said here, a reward of 2,000, uh, then 600 pounds were promised to the one who would kill the beast. 6,000 so, 6, pounds. Oh, sorry, there we go. Yeah, 6,000 pounds. So a lot of money uh, to anybody who could uh, bring this thing down. All the parishes informed the peasants during the sermon uh, at a church that they, you know, they were trying to comfort them and also spread the news. And unless it came from hell, the monster had to succumb for sure, and one would learn its death sooner or later. So what they're saying is that, uh, come on, it's just flesh and blood, right? This thing has to be killable. And once that happens, and it will, so don't worry about it, one of us is going to get it. To make sure that the beast had been slaughtered, the lords of Languedoc ordered that the remains of the beast should be exposed to the public. So we're going to make a big deal about this. Well, here's an interesting social point that Wolsonot in the article points out as a motivation for so many joining the hunt, aside from wanting to stop the killing spree, of course. This is from an observation from J. Smith, the author, J.M. Smith, historian and author of Monsters of Gévaudan. This hunt for the beast, for these men, like Captain Duhamel, would be a way for them to redeem their honor and their wounded pride after the war. So as Scott said here, yes, along with a true crime sensationalism angle, the newspapers also lauded the heroism of some of the peasants who managed to fight off the beast, like the uh, a young boy named Jacques Portefeuille, who on January 12th in 1765, Portefeuille and around seven other children were tending cattle in a meadow. Children! What were you and I doing, Scott? I was playing uh, Atari. Yeah. <laughs> at, at 12, <laughs> these kids are working. That's the life they grew up. Working hard. That's probably why they were uh, had as children to help out with the farm. But they're out in the fields, even though this horrible thing's running around. Like I said, stuff has to get done. Animals don't feed themselves. They have to be tended to. So uh, these Portefey and about seven other children here, they're in the meadow when the beast came at them and attacked several times. 
but they banded together and they managed to fend it off with their pikes and spears. So uh, why don't you tell the story here from the website? Well, another aspect of the media of the time, you could say, the newspapers, that was going on was also an angle, again, as the statement that we made earlier was that this country needed to feel better about itself, France. Yes. After coming out of uh, horrendous conditions and a post-war era. And they found some of this in pumping up the heroism of the peasantry, the common people, the hoi polloi, in the bravery of these people. And yeah, they're enduring hardship, but they're fighting back. They're banding together. They're not giving up. Maybe their their whole region's been cursed, of as some of the clergy might say. We've sinned somehow, and this is our penance. But I love this next story coming up, as we introduced it before, because this is another story of not just peasants being brave and strong and fearless as much as they can be in the face of this horrific beast, but these are kids! <laughs> If you love the Goonies, if you love Stranger Things, yes, this is not some fictional baloney. This really happened. Also, more recently, Super 8. Yeah, oh, that's another, yeah, yeah. that's another great one. But yeah. no, I love all those movies. And, and people are, yeah, it's funny that how fond people are of the Goonies. And, and it's that old chestnut of kids banding together, very Spielbergian, and finding courage in their numbers and uh, being a, a tight-knit group of friends. But these are real little kids out working, for one. But not only that, they don't freak out. They find their courage. These are tough kids. So, Scott, why don't you tell us the story? Okay, this story appears all over the internet, lots of different sources yeah. for it. But I really do believe that Carl Hans Taka really tells an excellent version of it in his book, The Gévaudan Tragedy, The Disastrous Campaign of a Deported Beast, which we've already mentioned a few times. This is from mm -hmm. location 589 of the Kindle edition of that book. And if this doesn't convince you to check the book out, if you're into this story, nothing well. So I just want to read this section. There are episodes belonging to the history of the beast, which sound so incredible that they seem to have been invented but they are historically warranted. And by the way, folks, keep in mind, this was translated from French to English, so it's a little clunky here and there, and mm. as my French will be, too. So, <laughs> As my English is. <laughs> On 12th January, 1765, five boys and two girls from the village of Villeray d'Apchet, parish of Chanelais, guarded the cattle of their families on a pasture, probably swept free of snow by the wind, in a mountainous region in the northeast of the Margeride. When the beast appeared suddenly, the seven joined together for defense under the instruction of the largest of the children, the 12-year-old Jacques-André Potefay. In the front line, the three 12-year-old boys. In the second row, the two girls. Sounds like Sparta. They're, they're doing a good <laughs> job. In which case, we only know the age of Madeline, nine years old. Behind them, the two eight-year-old boys. All children were armed with a stick with a metal blade at the end. As long as it was not used, this blade, which was as sharp as a knife, was covered with a leather sheath to prevent the danger of injury. The children pulled off these protective covers and made the sign of the cross. The beast circled around the group and looked for the most suitable victim, while the children tried to keep it at a distance with their lances. Finally, it attacked the eight-year-old Joseph Panifu on his neck. The three oldest stabbed it but could not penetrate its skin with their lances. When the beast retreated, however, it tore a piece from Joseph's right cheek and devoured it. The beast now concentrated its attack on the eight-year-old Jean Verrier and pushed him to the ground with its muzzle, left him there, as the three eldest children stabbed it again, then attacked Jean on his head, bit into his lips, seized his arm, and carried the boy off. 
The children followed the beast and drove it to a swamp 50 steps away, where it sank up to its stomach and in this way was prevented from moving quickly with its prey. Among the children, driven by panic-stricken fear, there was a verbal exchange whether it would be better to run away. Jacques Portefeuille shouted that he would either save his comrade or perish with him and ran mm. ahead towards the beast. The other children followed his example, even Joseph, who was badly hurt. They attacked the beast with their lances, once again could not penetrate its hide, tried in vain to hit its eyes, but hit its open mouth. The beast snapped at Jacques Portefeuille's weapon and bent it. In the meantime, it prevented its victim from escaping by holding him with a paw. Under the continued attacks of the children, the beast jumped back and let Jean go. Jacques Portefeuille brought himself into position between Jean and the beast. Jean pulled himself up behind Jacques at his coat, raised himself, and escaped with an arm injury. The beast ran to a hill. The children pursued it, and the beast fled and finally crossed a stream. Meanwhile, a man who had been alarmed by the screams hurried to the place where the sounds came from. When the king was informed, this would be Louis XV, about mm -hmm. the brave rescue of little Jean, he handed over a reward of 300 livres to Jacques Portefeuille. The other six children received the same as a total sum. The chroniclers of that time even recorded details as to the body heights of the children. Jacques Portefeuille, for example, was 1.32 meters tall. The two smallest boys, 1.10 meters. Alexa, how many feet is 1.32 meters? <laughs> 1.3 meters is 4.2 feet. Okay. So that puts Jacques Portefeuille at a little over four feet tall and everyone else shorter. None of the children reported that the beast was a wolf. And how could a wolf, an animal adapted to run over long distances and with claws unsuitable to grasp, succeed in holding tight a child that is 1.1 meters tall who is desperately trying to escape, while six other children in fear of death are stabbing this animal with metal blades? The more details you find out about the beast, the more far-fetched its alleged wolf identity sounds, and the more clearly its true identity is revealed. In a poem that made the rounds as a hymn of praise of the seven children, the beast became a, quote, monster that had escaped the beaches of Africa, end quote. So that section, I just thought that story is just, how is this not a movie already? How, <laughs> just that, you could build a whole franchise off that yeah. one encounter. It's just amazing. There is a movie about La Bête du Gévalbon. The Brotherhood of the Wolf, I think. Yes. But I'm not sure if it highlights or includes this scene. These kids chase this thing. And they yeah. pursued it. And they, they are like, so okay, brave. You, you kids are crazy. I know you're malnourished and you're not much of a snack, but uh, I'm out of here. And uh, they scared it off. It just, But the behavior is strange. And we'll get into the, uh, the theories or the hypotheses of why this hide might have been so thick. But it's strange. Canine fur and skin from my experience, is not that... From all the times that you've had to stab a wolf? No, from the times that I took uh, broken little mini alcohol bottles and taped them to my fists to uh. fight off a pack of wolves. <laughs> ah, the gray. Oh, I'm sorry, that might have been uh, Liam Neeson. Yes, yes. But the idea, though, is that that's what I thought about seeing that movie was in this day and age, wolf attacks are pretty infrequent. You know, usually under special circumstances, this happens, but that's all he's got. Look, we know canines, and, and there are other animals with thicker hides, like boars, and their hair is much sturdier, coarse, thick, and 
possibly uh, harder to penetrate, but this just sounds weird. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The, the, the behavior of this it thing attacking. supernatural. Yeah. Again, I, you know, not to foreshadow that's where we're going. No, with this I'm not saying right I'm going there either, but I'm saying in this moment, this story has a supernatural bent to it that's, you know, similar to the stories you would hear about yeah. Skinwalker, as you said. It's a little weird, but at the time, though, they're taking this as natural, even yes. for the people they just the can't time, figure out is, what it is. Right, and and uh, this is an angle that we're going to talk about towards the end. Is uh, you know this is also still the time of magic in certain circles, uh, vampire lore, werewolves. That's never really gone away. Why isn't it more so here? So then I wonder: Is this just the filter of time and reason? In the last 200 years. Yes, and before we move on from uh, Portefe, I did want to point out one other thing. The king also uh, paid for his education, and he became right, right. A, a well-educated man and enjoyed a long career and actually met the king and became somewhat of a celebrity after this. Yeah, he, right. Well, not a bad uh, nest egg he starts off with, 350 livres, and uh, the kids had uh, 300 to split amongst them. But Louis pledged that the boy Jacques would receive an education paid for by the state but also he pledged the state would help with killing the beast. Yeah, so this story, of course, reached Versailles, but now it was like, okay, you know what? If little kids are trying to fight this thing off and it's so horrific, you're going to get help from the king. Well, yeah, on top of that, he's starting to have issues because these folks are starting to get upset and he can't have the peasants revolting because of this situation. They're already having a bad harvest and now they're getting yeah. indiscriminately murdered. And not only that, their kids are getting killed and the adults. So right, he's right. got to do something about it before it gets out of control. Hello, everyone. I'm Kylie McKee and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, there are two people now that are sent who are authorities in the region or are tasked with leading this this hunt, this charge of uh, fixing this problem here. One of them is, as we mentioned before, Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel. He is the military brains of the operation here, trying to coordinate this. And there's one that is more a government, uh, regional government delegate, Etienne Lafont. These are really the two people in charge and Captain Duhamel is doing his best to try and get the villagers and all the people coordinated and, you know, so this isn't crazy and it's dangerous and they're shooting each other, right? So he's, as we stated before, really trying to use military tactics here in beats, as they could say, or going out in rounds throughout the day and night to hunt the beast. And there were several chances where he could have taken a shot at the beast, but he was hampered by less than cooperative peasants, you could say. They don't know who this guy is. I'm not sure they even had that much ease in communicating because I believe the dialect of French is slightly different. I'm just going off here from uh, some of the other things that I've read and that there were problems with the communications going on. And then some of the men that he had under his command were a bit incompetent. So, you know, for example here, it was anticipated that the beast would cross the Truyère River but the villagers of Les Malzieux didn't show up. <laughs> they didn't get the memo, or they were scared and they didn't want to. So they had this beast cornered. They were tracking it. They knew its path. They said, be ready at this spot to intercept it, and they did not, and it got away once again. Yes, and also I'd like to say, to be fair, there were times that this happened with his own troops as well, where the company— Oh, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. company had flushed it a certain way, and they were like, oh, great, they, you know, those guys are going to be over there. Right. They'll stop it, and they hadn't showed up that day, his own yeah. people. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, that's what I was saying. Yeah, the the incompetence of his own men was a factor, but he was doing his best. 
But after numerous failed attempts, Captain Duhamel is ordered to stand down. So he stands down as Louis XV then sends in two professional wolf hunters from Normandy, a father and son team of Jean-Charles-Marc-Antoine Vermezle de Naval and his son Jean-Francois. Yeah, don't leave out Jean-Francois. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the easy one. <laughs> Jean Valjean. Yes. yes. Uh, well, no, what's funny is later on, uh, the son is often confused, I believe, in this pair for the father. Yes, because they both are, there's an yeah, they're both Jean situation. Jean's, yes. Well, this pair arrived in Clermont-Ferrand on February 17th, 1765, and began stalking the beast right away with their usual wolf hunting techniques of employing stealth tactics. So they're more like regular hunters that we're saying. They're, they're, they're laying in wait. They're hiding out. They're used to hunting wolves. Well, this differed from Captain Duhamel's strategy of using hunting parties to flush out the monster. So it made a cooperation of efforts between the two groups useless. The father, Jean Charles, had claimed he'd killed at least 1,200 wolves in his career, and he believed the beast was a Eurasian wolf. And therefore, he hunted it like one, using eight bloodhounds trained to track them. But the Denevals had no luck after four months of hunting for the beast, as if it were a wolf. And by this time, those closest to the encounters were not even sure it was a wolf. Which is, again, keep that in mind, that's pretty interesting. So, the regional government delegate, Etienne Lafont, had at first reported that the beast was much bigger than a wolf. And, quote, had a snout somewhat like a calf's and very long hair, which would seem to indicate a hyena. Keep that in mind. A lot of people think this was a hyena. Well, he's not saying it is. It's similar. It's reminding him of a hyena. But what he is saying here in quotes, as a quote from him, this is much bigger than a wolf, whatever this thing is. Yeah. So they know what hyenas look like. They know what wolves look like. Hyenas typically are not as big as wolves, I don't believe. No, the adult hyena, the largest one, I believe, was the striped one. There's, there's a striped and the spotted. Yeah. The striped one, I think, is the largest one, but the adult of that is still smaller than an adult male wolf right. in most situations, I believe. That's my understanding as well, and, and I am an expert because I've seen so many of the nature programs on PBS. Yeah, well, there you go. I've remembered some of it, so... <laughs> You would think, though, if there was hyenas that people, there would have been more reports of the laughing sound that hyenas make that's very specific. Yeah, exactly. It's, you're going back to the hybrid theory because it's not totally acting like a hyena. People, there were zoos back then. There were animals brought from all over the world, especially to Paris and some of the bigger cities. People were familiar with this stuff. And yeah. that's another thing that doesn't really jive with, well, it's this or it's that, or it's, you know, maybe it's a hybrid. In that case, perhaps it's not that recognizable. So Captain Duhamel wrote that the beast, quote, had a breast as wide as a horse. Think about that. Yeah. Quote, a body as long as a leopard's, and quote, fur that was red with a black stripe. He went on to say, as you heard at the beginning of the episode, you will undoubtedly think, like I do, that this is a monster, hybrid, the father of which is a lion. What's its mother remains to be seen. So he's already thinking it's some kind of lion hybrid. Right. So he's voting feline. And this is one of the things that's interesting to me about this story is how often it bounces back and forth between canine and feline. But I do feel yeah. like on the yeah. whole, you get more feline clues than you do canine ones. But if you take a look at one of the girls that encountered it that we were just talking about, I think Valet had said mm -hmm. that it was canine or canine looking. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, of course, you know, people might be making mistakes. There's all kinds of things that could be happening when you think about these creatures. If, if something was ill, if it had mange and it was had lost all its fur, a bear without its right. fur is the craziest right. looking thing you've ever seen. So there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of possibilities of things going on there that they weren't necessarily aware of that could have misidentified it. But the other thing that Taka says in his book about Duhamel's description is it may be based on his own personal eyewitness accounts, or it may also be based on what his soldiers were telling him, who right, he right. trusted to make an accurate representation of the things they had been seeing. Right. But the point I want to make here is that people have seen this up close. Not only the survivors, That's but right. the hunters uh, from a distance up close, they've seen it move. This is over a long period of time. So, of course, accounts are now being culled together and a picture is being painted. And yeah, like I said, a lot of people are, well, think about this. If it's a hundred people or up, up to some counts of 300 people in a year, think of the proportion of people that are going dead every week. Yeah. So it's an ongoing thing, creates a lot of terror and more professionals are now being brought in. So as the killings continued, by June of 1765, the next year here, Francois Antoine, the king's lieutenant of the hunt, officer of the royal bedchamber, that's a, quite a title there, and gun bearer. So Antoine could be described as the king's bodyguard, or arquebusier, which uh, is just a soldier who fires an arquebus, who, which was then an early model of a long rifle that was fired while steadied with a monopod. You've probably seen these yes. old, uh, old shows. Or from a battlement, uh, sometimes they're called hook guns. And uh, there was a, a fixture at the bottom that uh, you could study with a battlement uh, to keep it in place because these things uh, kicked. Yes, so, and did a lot of damage. Yes, well, Antoine took over for the Deneval duo on the 22nd. Now, author Jay Smith states that other witnesses had claimed even more fantastical characteristics check this out, that this thing could walk on its hind feet, its hide could repel bullets, and it had, that's my favorite part here, fire in its eyes. And though it was shot several times, it came back from the dead several times and had amazing leaping ability, like a giant man-wolf running beside your car. And it wore a checkered an shirt and it smoked camel lights. <laughs> no, well, it's... it's well, that's... how could it run that fast of smoking that much? It's, uh, yeah, well, amazing. <laughs> it is crazy, though, but there are numerous stories. We're not, we can't get into all of them in an episode of the show, but, it, and I'm sure that you think we already have, but, I mean, when you're talking about a hundred, <laughs> over a hundred cases, and yeah. in several cases, it was cornered and shot multiple times, and it seemed down, right. it even fell down, but it always yeah. got up and got away. It always got away. Oof. This is why, you know, we probably wouldn't be taken seriously by a zoologist, certainly not. Uh, We're not taken seriously was, by anybody. We, <laughs> no, but we do, we do have professional people in the sciences who like to listen to us because we're amusing, I'm, I'm sure. And yes. they have an interest. It's like Doc Coggs. He may not believe in any of this stuff, but he finds it interesting. That's right. And certainly, I find his show interesting in the angles he covers from a scientific perspective. That would be the Mad Scientist Podcast, yes. which you can find wherever you get your podcast. And uh, yes. Mr. Cogswell, Chris Coggs, Dr. Chris Cogswell, who started Dr. out. Dr. Chris Cogswell. Uh, started out in the podcast world, at least, as a free searcher for us in the Astonishing Research Corps. So, yeah. <laughs> and has his own a successful show now. Yes, along with our, our other uh, good friend, Marie Mayhew, who contributes to yes. that and has her own show, Whatever Remains. Dr. Both Marie. were researchers, yes, for us. The points here in that every story that we discuss, I like to pick out and remember and note the elements of description that are key and significant and curious. 
here, as we've come to talk about the paranormal, this is what I was getting at, is that uh, nobody else considers fire in its eyes, except for us, because we come across a lot of paranormal stories where uh, shadow men, hat men, all these creatures somehow have these fiery eyes, Mm -hmm. yellow, orange, red, all manner of colors. The Bigfoot creatures at Chestnut Ridge had green glowing eyes, I believe. That's right. Everyone's got the glowing eyes. So everyone's got the fire in the eyes. But Scott, uh, read this encounter here that's on the website uh, because there's a couple of things here that I, I find interesting in the characteristics of the, the behavior of this beast. Right. Once again, this is from the website labetdujevudan.eu slash en, which we'll have links to in the show notes, uh, en being for the English version. Mm-hmm. One day, the troop led by Mr. Lafon, marching for 72 hours, stopped wow. all of a sudden near the castle of Baum. The beast... The beast is there. It was seen hidden behind a wall. It lays on its belly and watches a young shepherd who keeps oxen in the distance in a pasture. But the enemy has discovered it, and in a jump, the beast reaches the grove nearby. This time, it is caught. Peasants dash for it, surround the small wood, and others squeeze in between the branches. The beast is flushed out and is gaining momentum. A hunter fires at ten feet. It falls, gets up, receives a second bullet, falls again, gets up, and gets hobbling into the woods. One hunts it down, shoots it. Here it is again in the plain, falling at each shot, always getting up. Finally, it's seen coming back in the grove and disappearing. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about large, uh, you know, muzzle loader type weapons, I would believe here, firing maybe rounds as large as 50 caliber. It's a, yeah. it's a big ball bearing. Yeah. Sound like anything else we've heard of? Skinwalker Ranch, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, Terry Sherman firing a 357 Magnum at this thing. Uh, no effect. And I can't remember the story. I think the sun comes out with a uh, .30-06 and uh, a chunk of flesh finally flies off the beast. And it finally decides it's going to leave casually. And the best part, again, I like these little details, the best part of that story. They claim that the chunk of uh, hide that flew off their freaky dire wolf smelled like rotten flesh, yeah. like corpse flesh. Yeah. Like, what's going on there? That shouldn't happen. It should be fresh. So if you believe that story, that's pretty strange. I don't know what's happening here or it's not been reported, but all these little details are interesting in that, yeah, this thing can't be put down by regular shot, by spears, by stabbing. It is affected, but it keeps getting away and uh, mysteriously somehow disappears. Well, Francois Antoine, his son, and a contingent of men hunted for the beast until on September 20th or 21st of 1765, they managed to kill a large gray wolf weighing about 130 pounds or 60 kilograms and measuring 31 inches tall or 80 centimeters and five feet, seven inches long, or that would be 67 inches or 1.7 meters or 170 centimeters long. So generally speaking, if you look it up, a male wolf averages about 88 pounds or 40 kilograms in weight, 31 to 33 inches or 80 to 85 centimeters at the shoulder height and 41 to 63 inches, or 105 to 160 centimeters in length. We give the metrics out here, because we have a lot of uh, international listeners. So that gives you an impression without them having to ask Siri or anything. So uh, it's not that much larger than an average wolf. It's a big wolf, but it's not abnormally huge. It's just a big wolf. Yeah. 
So this wolf was killed near the Abbey de Chazes and was therefore named Le Loup de Chazes and was the biggest Antoine had ever seen. His report declared, quote, We declare by the present report signed from our hand, we never saw a big wolf that could be compared to this one. Hence, we believe this could be the fearsome beast that caused so much damage, end quote. Apparently also, to confirm this, some of the beast's survivors recognized scars on the body of the wolf obtained when the victims were defending themselves against it and claimed that this was the beast that attacked them. So you have some people saying like, yep, that's the one that got me, and uh, here's where I stabbed it. Yes, and Taka mentions this wolf, of course, in his book at location 1122. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. He says, Antoine was the hero of Gévaudan, and soon throughout France, the wolf was tied on a horse and taken to the castle of Bessette. The surgeon Boulanger from Sauguet was summoned for the next day. Likewise, witnesses who had seen the beast, in the wolf's stomach, the surgeon found rib bones, probably those of a sheep. The wolf's head and body, length of 143 centimeters. You already mentioned these dimensions. Yeah. However, wolves can reach head and body lengths up to 160 centimeters and can weigh more than 80 kilograms. This only weighed 63. Mm -hmm. Eight witnesses stated that it was the animal they had seen in an attack. So this was celebrated and all over France, and this happens over and over. These mm -hmm. animals keep getting celebrated all over France. And after a while, you start to look kind of foolish, especially as a king, giving awards, having ceremonies. And the other thing that's happening, according to Taka in his book, The Gévaudan Tragedy, is that you have cases of people killing wolves and then altering the bodies to make yeah. them conform to the idea of the Beast of Gévaudan. Yeah. by trying to make it larger, putting bones in the stomach, shoving clothes of victims down into the ca stomach cavities with sticks, putting scars on them or trying to injure them in ways that would match. So everybody's trying to be, everyone wants to be the hero and say that they've killed this thing. Well, one, you want this to be over with, certainly, and there's a lot of money involved here and fame and prestige. Some reports I saw say the wolf was stuffed and transported to the court at Versailles or... It wasn't, and by the time it was taken there, it decomposed so badly that it was just quickly buried and therefore not fully examined by the authorities there. As we said, at the court, there's going to be more knowledgeable people in the sciences, and uh, you see, who knows what happened with that one. In one yeah. case, it stopped, and then I want to know where it is. Yeah. Uh, I want to see this. <laughs> well, I think in this case, it is just a wolf. Yeah. I want to see the other thing. In either case, though... Antoine, the father, stayed in the Auvergne forest to hunt the female partner of the giant male wolf and her two pups. And Antoine's son, Antoine de Potern, received a hero's welcome at the king's court. So he, he travels on to Versailles as the son. He's getting a lot of uh, praise and welcome and accolades. The father stays to keep hunting because he wants to put an end to this. This is the report that uh, supposedly happens here is that the Antoine, the father, reportedly killed the female wolf and one of her pups, which was said to be larger than her once grown. So maybe it is a strange genetic freak of nature here. Uh, the other pup was shot but escaped and presumed died of its injuries. Antoine eventually received a huge cash reward from Louis XV of over 9,000 livres. Whew. Along with awards and titles, yeah. awards and titles. You got to have that. It's like, it's not just the raise. You got to, uh, you're now director of uh, Wolfendry. Every one of these ceremonies looks like the closing <laughs> scene to the first Star Wars movie. <laughs> it's, yes, it's dancing to You killed it. Congratulations. Did, did it, did it. Now yes. you're talking so, about, uh, that's. I know. Yeah. Empire Strikes the Back. Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, always a celebration. Yeah. Yeah. So they think uh, this is it. It's been done. It's taken care of, right? 
But then just two months later, on December 2nd, two boys, age 6 and 12, were attacked. It seemed the beast was back as it tried to abscond with the six-year-old, but the older boy was able to fight it off. For another year and a half, the beast continued to terrorize the region, with another 30 to 35 killings taking place. Observations by the shepherds who encountered it reported that the beast was fearless around cattle. Again, it got braver, uh, as it did not apparently around the uh, the first oxen story. Well, King Louis the Fifteenth didn't step in this time because he thinks the matter has been taken care of. Look, look, I'm not going to pay another ransom for another wolf. Okay, so via Donia. That's my. I yes. don't know what he sounds like. Yeah, right? it's very good. okay. Well, the killing spree of the beast didn't seem to stop until June nineteenth, seventeen sixty seven when a local farmer by the name of Jean Chastel shot and killed the beast, or a beast, on the slopes of Montmouchet, now known as Le Sogne d'Auvert. Right? Yeah, that was pretty good. Does that good. mean dream of uh, Sogne? Okay, yeah. yeah, we'll keep moving on here. Uh, Jean Chastel had been briefly imprisoned by Francois Antoine for leading his party of men into a bog on a previous hunt. And I wondered about that. Did he do that as a joke? Yeah, I read about that in Taka's book. This is actually location 1048 of the Kindle edition of it. Mm-hmm. They asked three locals, Jean Chastel and his adult sons, who had been hired for the beast hunt, if it was possible to go through there without danger. Knowing well that entering the swamp was perilous and obviously driven by his antipathy against strangers, Antoine, one of Chastel's sons, acclaimed that one could ride through there without being harmed. When mm. Pelissier and his horse were in danger of sinking in the deep swamp and could only save themselves by a hair's breadth, the Chastels reacted with laughter instead of helping him immediately. Pelissier tried to arrest Antoine Chastel. In the ensuing melee, the Chastels threatened Pelissier with their guns. The next day, the Chastels were imprisoned on Francois Antoine's order. Since Francois Antoine feared the revenge of the Chastels, he gave the instruction to release them not until four days after his departure from Gévaudan. Smart thinking. Yeah. Uh, and I would also be pretty peeved. Jean Chastel had a reputation as being a poacher. I believe that. Yeah. These are less than uh, upstanding citizens, you could say. And also this anecdote you, you just relay points out what we just talked about and that the authorities or the appointed ones here, uh, this wasn't the most coordinated hunt and efforts were thwarted often by just the people. The You know, like I said, they, they weren't communicating well. A lot of these people didn't trust outsiders. Who are you to come in here and tell us uh, how to organize this thing? Uh, we know the countryside. There's a lot of problems here, and uh, I think contributed to why this thing was not stopped right away, other than that it's a freaky supernatural beast. But in this case, though, yeah, not the best coordinated efforts. And uh, yeah, it was bungled in a lot of cases here. But hold on. Even though Jean Chastel was briefly imprisoned, he goes on another hunt, this time organized by the Marquis d'Apcher, a local nobleman. And this time, Jean Chastel uses a large caliber bullet combined with buckshot he'd made himself from, guess what? Silver. Mm-hmm. And that works. Yes. Okay, so... Uh, this detail yeah, might be I'm not apocryphal. rubbing it in. I'm just saying, I'm not, I I'm know, not saying werewolf. Detail, I'm not saying werewolf. This yeah. detail might be apocryphal, but yes. And then the most amazing thing happened right before the eyes of the hunting party and confirmed with sworn affidavits, the slain beast turned back into a man. See? There you go. Yeah. I'm sorry. I I, I wrote that and had you read it just so... uh, Yes. I just wondered if you were paying attention. That's all I'm saying. Yes, I am paying attention. Okay. That didn't happen. That's not in any of the reports. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm not even sure sure about the silver. No, but you know what is interesting? On the Wikipedia page for the area 
that this is taking place in the modern area, the Marjorie'd, mm -hmm. there's yeah. this entry there that describes this whole intense thing about the idea of the beast of Gévaudan being a werewolf. And I'm just going to say, I, I would it's like to... It's about dang time, I will say. I do want to share this information. However, it is not sourced on that page, and I could not find it anywhere else, anywhere mm -hmm. else on the internet globally, including the names mentioned in it, uh, searching French websites as well and other historical areas. I do think it was added by the tourism board for the region. <laughs> well, yeah. But it's probably based on local lore. It's just hard to source it because they didn't source it. Right. The, but listen to this. The Beast of Gévaudan, and this is on the Wikipedia page inviting you to come check out the area. The mm -hmm. Beast of Gévaudan was a French legend that supposedly takes on the appearance of a large wolf-like creature. This creature is fabled to be very powerful and possessive, almost like a demonic spirit. A normal man or woman, human, can open their bodies up to be possessed by the beast of Gévaudan, la bête, by drinking the water out of the footprint of a wolf. They must drink the water straight off the ground during a full moon. Once the spirit of la bête took possession of the person's body, they would experience memory blanks, loss of time which they cannot account for, fugue states, aggression, confusion, delusions, and hallucinations. Sounds like after a night of recording. Supposedly, <laughs> La Bette was born from a continued line of werewolves where the male of each generation would have the wolf gene in their DNA and during a blood moon, they would pass on the wolf power through a bite. La Bette mm. was first fabled to be in the body of a man named Josiah Lou Silvre. S-I-L-V-R-E. Accent. Oh, I okay, I see where you're going with this, originally. Josiah Lou Silvre and his sister was the one who killed him with a single spear crafted from mountain ash and mistletoe. Oh, yeah. Folk magic. I yes. Like the spirit of La Bette is the most powerful legend in France. And when someone drinks the water from the print of a wolf and becomes La Bette, their person gradually ceases to exist. Their memories, their very essence is replaced by that of Josiah Lou Silvre. And his spirit sinks vengeance on all hunters and descendants of his sister the bloodline of Lou Silvray. The name Silvray can be translated to mean silver, which is mm. coincidentally the fabled element capable of killing a werewolf. However, silver doesn't kill a wolf, but simply weakens it. Labette went after the modern descendants of his family who had the names of silver, Silvray, Argent, Siljon. Josiah's sister was also known as the maid of Gévaudan. Ah. So this is super interesting. A lot of details here, but I, I yeah. couldn't we couldn't corroborate this anywhere. And also the maid of Gévaudan is actually Valet, the girl that stabbed it with the spear. Right, right. So right. that would mean that she was his sister, but her name was not Silvray. And I couldn't find the name Silvray in a global search in Ancestry.com. <laughs> <laughs> like, like go there. Yeah, Lou, thank yeah, you. Lou Silvray, Josiah, right. Josiah. Couldn't find any of that anywhere. But I do love this story. I love these details in here. And I can't help but think that this is folkloric information is buried in here yeah. that, that yeah. might have been written by uh, somebody from the area. Right. Well, uh, I'm going with that story until I hear otherwise. <laughs> because it's got all the elements that... Uh, you know, that I loved as a kid. I love them now. The elements that inspired the the editor of the French website we've been uh, pulling from. Yes. That's why people love this story here is that uh, it's got all these romanticized elements. A few things in there might be true, but cobbled together, it makes a great legend. And that's why we're here. But I will tell you this, Scott, I was going to try and organize this for Halloween of last season. 
and we couldn't get it together. This uh, gentleman's very busy, very kind man, very interesting fellow to talk to, but I wanted to hear his thoughts on one of his books here, The Flixton Werewolf by Paul Sinclair, and he is a good friend of our good friend, Gletters, who has his anomaly .co.uk podcast on similar stuff. And uh, he was just too busy. He was out in the field. They were actually uh, shooting some stuff for an upcoming special, I believe. So he was not available for us to get in time for Halloween, uh, our Halloween. But we hope to have him on one day because he is collecting reports that are happening now of people seeing weird wolfman beasts on their properties in England, looking in their windows. Just freaks you out. And so it's not something that's relegated to the 18th century only. Apparently it's still going on. Well, let's get back to what happened to this uh, Jean Chastel beast. Okay, perhaps it was the silver or just a large caliber shot in the right place that led to bringing down the beast. And uh, this is important here, with locals leading the hunt who knew how to navigate the landscape and deal with farmers and shepherds. And uh, that was the other uh, Forbes article we talked about. That angle, we probably won't have time to talk about it tonight, but what was interesting about it is that that article deals with the geography, the geology of the territory and how difficult it is to access. And also that's why this thing was able to escape and also why they had trouble tracking it. Extinct volcano area, there's just these crazy valleys and uh, probably yeah. lava tubes and just all kinds of really complex terrain that it's very difficult to chase something, especially something that's an animal that it, that grew up in the area. It's Human beings are just going to have a hard time with that. Okay, I just sprung on a, uh, on a woo-woo far out concept here. Uh, you just reminded me of Mel's Hole which some people think is a lava tube from Mount Rainier and weird things have been seen in that coming yeah. in and out of, was that this, this, this place's home? Uh, who knows? But here's what we do know that's been recorded. So the Abbey Jean-Baptiste Fabre had reprinted Chastel's sworn account. And this is the Abbey. So he's in charge of a, I, th I think an Abbey of monks, uh, the lead dude. He's a known guy. I looked him up. So he was a real guy. He takes the sworn account of Chastel and the carcass of the beast was taken to the castle of the Marquis d'Apcher, where it was stuffed by a surgeon, as you said before, named Dr. Boulanger. The post-mortem report of Dr. Boulanger was later called the Marin Report due to it being transcribed by a notary named Marin or Marine, M-A-R-I-N. So it's known as the Marin Report. And according to the report, the remains of the beast's last victim were found in its stomach. Yeah. Well, Scott, we just told the audience one ending of this story, but it wasn't very dramatic in our telling. Why don't you read the passage from the website? Because even though, yes, it's coming from a French translation, it's a little more exciting than what I just said. On June 19, 1767, after a large pilgrim at Notre-Dame-des-Tours, the Marquis of Apcher, one of the lords of Gévaudan organized a beat. One of the hunters was Jean Chastel. He was 60 years old, was born at the turn of the century, in Darme, near Bessere saint henri He was a solid and religious man. The whole region regarded him with esteem for his honesty and good conduct. Okay, just I just level aside. I heard he was a poacher and possibly a werewolf, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that go for right now. Ooh, maybe... You think he was the werewolf? There is a story that indicates that he him, that he was thought to be himself a werewolf. Jean oh, Chastel. Okay. No. All right. Jean Chastel was stationing himself in front of Saunier d'Auvert near Sauga. He wore his shotgun loaded with two consecrated bullets. He was saying the rosary when he saw the beast. I have read that in multiple places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this time it was the real beast. Calmly, he closes his rosary, puts it in his pocket, takes off his glasses, puts them in a case, 
The beast does not move. It waits. Chastel shoulders his weapon, aims, shoots. The beast stands still. The dogs run up to the sound, knock it down, and rip it up. It is dead. Its body, loaded on a horse, is carried to the castle of Besk. It is examined, and it is indeed the beast. It is not a wolf. Its feet, its ears, the hugeness of its mouth indicate a monster of unknown origin. In its innards, one finds the shoulder of a young girl, most probably the one that had been devoured two days before in Pebrock. They showed the corpse of the beast in the whole country, then it was put in a box, and Jean Chastel went to Versailles with this cumbersome parcel. There, numerous well-educated people would determine what kind of animal it could be. Everyone would realize that Mr. Antoine had made light work of the king, because this was mm. the real beast. Unfortunately, yes. the trip took place under the warmth of August. All in all, the beast was in such a state of putrefaction that it was buried right away before anyone dared to examine it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, one will never know what the beast of Gévaudan was. However, Chastel was introduced to the king, who made fun of him. Chastel thought he was the victim of court intrigue. He did not protest his innocence. He kowtowed and came back to Gévaudan, where the receiver general granted him with 72 pounds. But the Gévaudan was less ungrateful than Versailles. Jean Chastel became a hero. Everyone knows his name. One century and a half after... A local writer devoted an epic poem, which we've mentioned before, of 360 mm -hmm. pages to him. The death of the monster is depicted colorfully. The bold hunter is seen. Now, there's a couple of fascinating, interesting things about this. Like we said, we did have sources that indicated that uh, folks thought he was a poacher. There's another probably apocryphal story where people said, oh, no, he was a werewolf. He was a werewolf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, then you can see where the local community wants to vaunt the local guy. The question is, yeah, though, yeah. what was this thing? And did it really come apart as he was bringing it to the king? Is it just another animal that isn't the right animal? Yeah. Oh, and additionally, if you look at Skeptoid's webpage on this, uh, mm -hmm. Brian Dunning's page, which we often refer to for the skeptical viewpoint, he makes a very valid point that uh, there's this mention of a collarbone or the shoulder of a young girl is not likely to have been in there because you cannot tell the sex, according to Mr. Dunning, you can't tell the sex of a of a person by their collarbone. And mm. the other thing that we'd read, not on Mr. Dunning's page, but somewhere else, I can't remember now, it might have been in Taka's book, I think it was was that the bones in a wolf's system anyway would be yeah. gone within 24 hours. So if the victim yeah. was two days earlier, there wouldn't be anything left. And frequently they didn't eat the bones anyway. They tried to get to the marrow, but that was it. Right. So right. there might be a little bit of bone in there, but it wouldn't have been in there two days after the last victim. So there's a lot of mm. things that don't necessarily add up about this particular story. Also the convenience yeah. of it decomposing before it can really be observed. That was what I was going to ask you in this account here. Well, there's two versions, right? And I could be wrong, but one is that the uh, Dr. Boulanger is the one who has uh, the, the taxidermy duties here and stuffs this animal, and then right. it's preserved some way. Yeah. In this version, they didn't get to stuff it. It's put in a box. It's on its way. But this is August, and it just turns to grotesque mush by the time they get to Versailles. And it's just like, oh, just get rid of that thing. So nobody really looks at it because like I said before, it was going to be taken to Versailles where there's uh, more, uh, as the uh, story here says, erudite people. But what he means is scholarly people that have some knowledge of zoology and, and could take a look at this thing. And it never gets that far. So what really happened? Did it get stuffed by Dr. Boulanger? Apparently, there is a post-mortem. There really is an account, a sworn affidavit, taken by the Abbey Jean-Baptiste Fabre. 
And there's a notarized Marin report. So were they telling the truth? Which people clearly have seen, Possibly. but we could not find the Marin report. We looked for yeah, it. And couldn't find it's it. Yeah, it sat there. Well, you know what? That. There was a yeah. There was a link to the uh, from the website that we've just read from. Uh, they used to have it as a PDF, but apparently that link does not work anymore. So uh, now we're to this section, Scott. What really happened? Let's talk about some of the crazy theories. One that's probably very popular right now: serial killer dressed as a wolf. Yeah, there's a lot of folks that think that it might have been a serial killer. There were a lot of female victims and mm. there was a nature to the mutilation that there are frankly things, you would have things in common with Jack the Ripper or something like that. This is true. Or even the Black Dahlia, there's common ground there. But I just don't think all the people that saw it attack and that fought yeah. it off would be confused that it was a person in a costume. That's just my take on that. This person would have to wear some kind of armor. It's also shaped like a human. It does. People yeah. uh, can't run like uh, canines can or as quickly as this thing apparently did. Nor carry off full-grown adults in their mouths while also right. running and being shot and stabbed. Just doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah, uh, unless so, all those attack cases are are not true, but there's so many yeah. of them. There's so many of them. There's so many of them. And as we always say with the paranormal stories, not all of them have to be true, just one. For That's right. To uh, not hold water here. So uh, we're going to set that one aside. No M. Night explanation or twist with this one. Right. So here's another one that pops up a lot as well. This is a dog hybrid, possibly bred by Shastel himself and covered in boar's hide and trained to attack others to divert, again, attention away from his other crimes of poaching and uh, other sordid business. It seems like a lot of work to go to. Also, maybe it's a dog hybrid, but not, uh, as I was saying before. Then, to be bulletproof, he's got to cover this thing in boar's hide, armor it somehow. I'm just going to quickly go over uh, who might have thought this. This appears in the Wikipedia page. Again, I've become suspicious of, and Scott and I have. But the uh, it does really lay out the modern theories and conclusions. So we're going to quickly mention some of these. According to modern scholars... This is the website saying this, not us. Public hysteria at the time contributed to the, the myths that sprung up that this thing was supernatural, but more likely it was a pack of wolves. And so uh, what I wanted to read here in connection, it states in 2001, the French naturalist Michel Louis proposed that the red-colored mastiff belonging to Jean Chastel sired the beast. So he's saying that uh, he found out apparently Jean Chastel had a, had a very large mastiff dog. It was red colored. It mated with uh, whatever this thing's mother was, and that the resistance to bullets may have been due to it wearing an armored hide of a young boar, which also accounted for its unusual color. So it's a little far fetched to me. Is it, I don't know. What does he mean, armored? I can understand if uh, somebody made a suit for this uh, this real animal that was maybe several layers of boiled leather, like the you know they used to do in the Middle Ages for armor that was not metal that might have stopped a arquebus round. Right. Now you're, you're involving a lot of mechanics here for this guy to, to make up a wolf that kills people just so he can cover up his, uh, his occasional deer hunting. Yeah, yeah. But then this naturals came up with that. So uh, again, we're getting back to the wolves. Oh, excuse me. I almost been in the wrong studio. This is Mr. John Darling. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends, especially this episode. 
Can you direct me to the booth for the Midnight Library? I did want to point out something that I learned during our research here. Mm -hmm. The peasants could not hunt on the land that they occupied, even right. if they had a predator situation. Only the nobles uh, could hunt. Yeah. Again, that's a source of some tensions as well, mm -hmm. why they're not cooperating with authorities there. They don't trust them. They don't get many benefits from them. And certainly now they're interested, now that this is national news and a bunch of them have been killed. So the wiki entry, though, seems to lean towards attacks by wolves, stating they were a very serious problem during the era, not only in France, but throughout Europe with tens of thousands of deaths attributed to wolves in the 18th and that's century wrong. alone. Right. That's what I was, this Wikipedia page <laughs> is gonna... a freaking mess. It's oh, a right. mess. Yes. Uh, uh. It is a mess. And we have a whole paper that points to those statistics being wildly inaccurate. Uh, almost a thousand yes. percent. It goes on to say in the spring of 1765, in the midst of the Gévaudan hysteria, which, uh, again, that's not our word. That's the entry and other people's description that mass hysteria, their word, not ours, because nowadays you would say mass psychogenic illness, which is often described for things like the dancing plague and other group behaviors that trigger strange behavior from the people, especially in the olden days, in this case, they're all seeing this crazy wolf and they're making up stories that are actually explaining more mundane wolf attacks. And so that's why you have the craziness associated with this. So that's what this entry is kind of going on to say here in that, yeah, in the midst of the Javaudan hysteria, an unrelated series of attacks occurred near the commune of Soissons, northeast of Paris, where an individual wolf killed at least four people over a period of two days before being tracked and killed by a man armed with a pitchfork. So he goes on to say, such incidents were fairly typical in rural parts of Western and Central Europe. Now, I would propose that, okay, so let's say they are very common. Well, are you saying that all of Gévaudan doesn't know what a regular wolf attack looks like? Are they just all crazed to and, and whipped up to think that this is something now much more weird and serious and, and possibly supernatural? Because if you're saying it's this common, then they would know more how to deal with it and wouldn't, yeah, it's horrible, but it also doesn't seem from their descriptions like that's what's happening here. The wiki entry goes on to say the Marine Report describes the creature as a wolf of unusually large proportions, quote, the animal which seemed to us to be a wolf, but extraordinary and very different by its figure and its proportions of the wolves that we see in this country. So it's W-O-U-S's. <laughs> Wolves of unusual size. <laughs> are you? Are you? Is that the? Are you? Are you tattling a rap song? What's happening here? No, I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm paraphrasing and quoting uh, the Princess Bride for the rats oh, that... of unusual R O U S S for the <laughs> no, rats of unusual right. size. Is yes, that, these are wolves of unusual size. Very good, sir. Yes. yes. Well. Uh... He goes on to say, this has been certified by more than 300 people who came uh, from all around to see this dead carcass. And like, yep, that's it. It's just a giant wolf that's kind of weird, but it's still a wolf. So again, that comes from the Marin report, apparently, but we haven't seen it. I'm not sure if I trust that. It kind of concludes here, despite the widely held interpretation based on most of the historical research, the beast was a wolf or other wild canid. Here's another one that we're going to talk about here in a second there are alternative theories that it might have been a hypothetical lion. I just want to say this, uh, and, and my other one, which is werewolf. The other one, before we get to the theories and conclusions, everyone in our audience anyway should keep in mind two points. There are the conclusions from those that have studied this event, but give zero credence to any explanation other than the mundane cause from something like, as we said, mass psychogenic illness, 
which again is is easy to label uneducated people, rural folk, bucolic folk, as they don't know what they're talking about. They're just a little nutso, right? By eggheads and <laughs> centuries in later, Paris. in yeah. Paris, yes, how dare you? Uh, centuries later, and just say, well, they, yeah, come on, they're simple folk. They can't read. They don't know what they're looking at. The counterpoint to that is. Yes, they couldn't read and write, but by the same token, right. if you took those folks out of Paris and put them out in the woods and asked them to identify no. the animals out there, they wouldn't be able to do that either, or a lot of them. They'd starve to death in about two days. So, yeah, yeah they can't take care of themselves. They're they're used to all this uh, finery and, and powdered wigs and such. Yes. Again, this goes along, though, with the misidentification of a common wolf or possibly a canine hybrid animal, you know, that they're just mistaking this. They don't know what they're looking at. These people aren't that smart. Was now. So, yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't like crane. that. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't buy Sandy it. H. So crane. that's uh, <laughs> that one thing here. Mass psychogenic illness. Well, then there's the other point of view, which also adds to the table, our table here, the possibility that cryptid animals may exist. That's my table. I don't know about you, Scott, but uh, I've heard too many weird things from people I trust that uh, there's just strange things out there. Animals that may not fall into the definitions within our known taxonomy. And it's not to say that they're supernatural in origin, uh, just unknown to our science then and now. Take, for example, the chupacabra may not have any magical powers. It may just be an unusual canine mutation. Bigfoot just could be a North American wood ape, as many enthusiasts believe. Yeah, there's some weird things about that. Is why haven't we found any dens? Why isn't there Bigfoot poop? Why can't we bring back any evidence? That's debatable. But that's what some people believe. Like, there's nothing magical about it. It's just evaded capture, and it's still, it's an extant form of primate. The Loch Ness Monster and every other giant mysterious lake creature may be extant prehistoric species that somehow survived. It's possible. I don't know. It's I, possible. I, uh, yeah, so I'm saying it's not magical. It's just a weird fluke of science and nature that this stuff uh, somehow pops up every once in a while and freaks people out. Okay, well, let's steer this back to uh, planet Earth and non-crazy town, <laughs> just for a moment. Let's look at what the Smithsonian article and author J.M. Smith believes is the answer to this. And it, again, this is, goes to uh, more mundane. And, and look, certainly, I'm ready to, to put my chips down on any one of these theories if it makes sense to me, as we always do with some of these stories. But uh, let's hear what that Smithsonian article says and uh, this author that we've quoted earlier here, and I'm taking this uh, from the article itself, quote, the end of the savagery did little to answer the burning question, what was the beast? It's been up for debate ever since. Historians and scientists have suggested it was an escaped lion, a prehistoric holdover, or even that Chastel himself trained an animal to attack people and deflect attention from his other crimes. So we mentioned all those. The author and historian Smith thinks the answer is more mundane. Quote, the best and most likely explanation is Gévaudan had a serious wolf infestation, Smith says. In other words, there may not have been one single beast of Gévaudan, but many large wolves attacking the isolated communities. Wolf attacks occurred throughout France during this period. Morisot, uh, I believe as a biologist, estimates that wolf attacks caused as many as 9,000 fatalities across the country between the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 19th century. Who is making that estimate? Well, we're, we're going to find out here. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe not that. You're going to explain, though, uh, what's wrong with this thinking. Yeah. It goes on to say, what made the attacks in Gévaudan memorable even to today were their violence and higher than average fatalities. Now, I'll buy that. As well as the press's ability to turn them into a riveting national story. 
Even 250 years since the beast of Gévaudan stalked the forests and fields of southern France, its fairy tale-like legacy looms large. That's the end of the article, and uh, yeah, I'll buy that part too. This report that we mentioned at the beginning, and we're so glad we found it because I think it's pretty solid. And a laundry list of scientists and biologists and experts who weighed in on this paper, and it's Norwegian. So look, they're familiar with the area and uh, wildlife, but what do they have to say? What's the real truth going on here? Or actually, let's say, what are the real statistics with wolf attacks? Well, this is an interesting report. And again, this comes from uh, Nina, not Nana, Mm -hmm. but Nina, which is the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, as we said earlier in the show. This report came out in January of 2002, and we just pulled down some excerpts from it that we thought were pretty interesting. I want to read a section of the foreword right here. This report was financed by the Ministry of the Environment with the purpose of providing a foundation for the process of reducing people's fear of wolves and to make some management recommendations to reduce the risks of attacks. The goal was to compile existing literature and knowledge on wolf attacks on people from Scandinavia, continental Europe, Asia, and North America, and to look for patterns in these cases. Here's another section called Patterns, Age, and Sex of Victims. This is with regard to wolf attacks. There were clear differences between the age of victims attacked by rabid and non-rabid wolves, respectively. This is where we get to talk about rabies a little bit. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of those attacked by rabid wolves were adults and mainly men. This reflects the expected pattern of those that work outdoors in agricultural and forestry activities. Rabid wolves apparently choose their victims at random, just biting the people and animals they encounter during the furious phase, which, by the way, is my favorite thing that I learned. Mm -hmm. And when you have rabies as an animal, and I suppose as a person, but specifically with wolves, they get real mad. There's a phase, and that's called the Mm. furious phase. (laughs) (laughs) So just be warned of the furious phase of a rabid wolf. Therefore, it is not expected to find any evidence for selection for any specific age or sex category among the victims. In contrast, the victims of predatory attacks by wolves are mainly 90% children under the Mm -hmm. age of 18, and especially under the age of 10. In the rare incidents where adults are killed, they are almost always women. In this next section, this is another interesting bit about wolf attacks. ELES, E-L-E-S, 1996, provides a good summary of the wolf attack data. Quote, wolves have killed people. It has been mainly children. It is unusual. People are not part of their normal prey. End quote. Despite the cases that we have presented here, it must be remembered that wolf attacks on people are and have always been a relatively rare and unusual event. We have covered North America and Eurasia over a period of 400 years. I want to remind everybody that this paper was mm-hmm. written by like 30 scientists. Or, you know, <laughs> and I might be exaggerating, but it's at least 20. There's a lot of people yeah, contributed yeah. to this. Yeah. And uh, this is the paper that was cited by uh, Taka in his book as well. Right. We have covered North America and Eurasia over a period of 400 years. During this period, billions of people have died from other causes than wolf attacks. It is clear that people do not appear as regular items of wolf prey. The episodes where wolves do prey on people are widely scattered through history. In areas where they have occurred, for example, India, Finland, France, it is interesting that local people have regarded the events as being due to an evil spirit. This indicates that predatory wolf attacks were not regarded as normal behavior for wolves. Attacking and preying on humans is much more a part of the, quote, normal behavior of other large carnivores, bears, cougars, tigers, than that of wolves. The risk of being attacked by a wolf are not zero but are clearly so low that they are virtually impossible to quantify, especially when compared to the other background risks associated with living. However, the challenge is to learn as much as possible from these rare past events about the ecology of wolf attacks on humans and place it into the context of the modern situation. 
Then there's a chart here. It's called Table 4, and this uh, the description for this is number of cases of wolf attacks on people in France, tabulated by Dave Beaufort. That's how I would say it here in North Carolina, but mm-hmm. it's Beaufort, <laughs> 1987, mm-hmm. from historical records. Note, the percentage of deaths resulting from attacks by rabid wolves is an underestimate because of a reporting bias against cases where a long time period occurred between being bitten by a rabid wolf and death. The discrepancy between total number of victims and numbers injured plus those killed is for cases where the fate of the victim was not given. So this particular period that we're talking about, there's many periods here and numbers of cases. If you look at the 20th century, for example, a rabid cases, zero, zero, non-rabies, mm-hmm. six cases, six victims, two injuries, two deaths. And that's one of those cases where they're not sure what happened to two of the people. And then they have several other years of listings. I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, the 1800s, from 1800 to 1824, there was 295 victims of non-rabid attacks, mm-hmm. 76 injuries, 72 deaths. But let's look at the period we're concerned with, 1750 to 1774. There were 364 victims of rabid attacks which resulted in 183 people being injured and 150 people dying. Non-rabbit attacks, there were 196 attacks, but only one injury, but 154 deaths. Now, still, this is 154 people. This is in the period we're talking about, the Beast of Gévaudan. Mm-hmm. It's 154. It's not thousands. This whole chart added up is yeah. not 10,000. It's like the most active column is 1,000 people. Now, let's read their excerpt on the Beast of Gévaudan. Between June 1764 and June 1767, wolves were reported to have killed over 100 people, many of which were partly eaten in the Gévaudan region of southern France. The exact number killed depends on the source, but de Beaufort tallied 210 attacks, resulting in 49 people wounded and 113 killed. Of those killed, 98 were at least partially consumed. Uh-huh. The case has been documented by a range of authors, including two abbots, Porcheur in 1889 and Fabre in 1901, and by historians de Bayac and de Beaufort, 1987. These authors have examined a wide range of documents, including parish and church records, death certificates, official reports, and private letters. Clark, 1971, has summarized the results in English. As a result, this remains one of the best documented historical episodes of wolf predation on humans. So they are saying that they, right there, that it might be wolf yeah. But also well-documented because, again, because it was so horrific and strange that people took notes. It appears that the local population was familiar with rabid wolves attacking people, but from the outset of this episode, it was clear that the wolves were not rabid as the attacks persisted over a long period, and most of the victims were consumed. In addition, a number of people were bitten during attacks but managed to drive the wolves away. None of these victims later died of rabies. If the wolves had been rabid, it would have been inevitable that most of the victims would have gone on to develop rabies. Enormous resources were used to try and kill the wolves, including the army, several nobles, and royal huntsmen. A large proportion of the local population was conscripted to take part in the hunt. Many wolves were killed, but the attacks continued until a wolf was killed in autumn 1765. This wolf was very large and was identified as being that responsible for attacking people from a series of scars inflicted by people that had defended themselves. However, after a brief pause, the attacks resumed again and continued until June 1767, when a second, especially large wolf was killed, this time with human remains in the stomach. 
Both of the wolves that were believed to be responsible for the attacks were exceptionally large and had unusual coat coloration, leading several later authors to speculate that they were hybrids between wolves and some of the large shepherd dogs found in the region. Both of the wolves had mates, and one at least was part of a pack. However, only the two exceptional wolves were ever implicated in attacks by witnesses or survivors. No attack was suspected as being due to the whole pack acting in a coordinated manner. The attacks occurred within an area of 90 by 80 kilometers. There has always been controversy about the identity of the beast, especially if it was really wolves that were responsible for all the deaths. Alternative hypotheses have been raised that it was the work of a serial killer or another animal, perhaps a hyena that had escaped from a zoo. Many works of fiction in both literature and film, most recently the French film Brotherhood of the Wolf, have embellished the tale. From our point of view, it is impossible to be 100% certain. There's another chart that actually details accounts from 1990 to 1999, and it's all a bunch of zeros except for one country, Iran. Mm. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't like wolves, look out in Iran. The years, (laughs) it's like 1992, 15 attacks, 93, 11, 94, 16, 95, 29, 96, 21, 97, 19. Mm. Uh, It just keeps going on. All the rest of the countries on this list, and there's like 30 of them, it's mostly zeros except for Kazakhstan in 1995, had 17, but it's got no data in the other one. So not sure what's going Hmm. on there. This paper goes on to talk about how a lot of wolf attacks are probably cases of mistaken identity, which we know. Mm -hmm. Lots of dog races, German shepherds, huskies, malamutes resemble wolves. They think a lot of people have gotten the information wrong. Another thing that they talk about looking at historical records, and this isn't specifically related to Gévaudan, are problems with oral tradition. Hmm. People faking attacks confusion about names. Another thing that I thought was interesting is the difference between killing and scavenging, which is something that you alluded to earlier in the show, Forrest. In many cases, the remains of people that have gone missing in the forest are found later in a decomposed or partially consumed condition. Often wolves may have fed on the body along with other scavengers, although there is rarely any proof that wolves actually killed the person. They are often blamed for it in the press. These stories occur in many countries, Romania, Greece, Russia, and are especially frequent during times of war. So there's a lot of dimensions to this. This paper is really fascinating, but they get to a point where they isolate four factors that are associated with wolf attacks on humans. Number one, rabies. Number two, habituation. When they lose their fear of humans, for example, in some protected areas, there's an increased risk. Uh, Number three, provocation. Includes uh, situations such as trying to kill a trapped or cornered wolf or entering a den with pups. And four, highly modified environments. This is where the majority of predatory attacks from pre-20th century Europe and present-day India have occurred in super artificial environments where a number of circumstances have happened. Uh, Little or no natural prey, heavy use of garbage and livestock, that sort of thing. All stuff that you Mm -hmm. wouldn't be surprised to hear about. But the main point that they, they make here towards the end is that this literature contains many examples of wolves being provoked without attacking humans. However, we found a number of cases where provoked wolves have bitten people in an attempt to get away. In most cases, these concern shepherds attempting to defend their sheep and trying to kill wolves with a stick. In no case have the wolves directly killed anybody in such situations. Unprovoked attacks by non-rabid wolves on people are very rare, and the vast majority of wolves do not regard people as being prey. So I think these are all interesting facts. So when you look at that, when you take this paper on the whole, what you find out is that when you apply it to the beast of Gévaudan, there's just almost no likelihood that there was any a rabid situation going on. And if you remove right, rabies right. from the equation, then you get, you're getting unprovoked attacks. None of that mm-hmm. lines up with wolf behavior. Also, the descriptions right. of the creatures don't line up with wolf behavior. So what happens is 
and I don't know if it's right to talk about this now for us, but w- what I see happening is these guys went out there and they killed a bunch of wolves and they were never after the right animal. And then the, maybe there yeah. was this one animal that looked a little stranger. This wolf was a little bit bigger or they were faking things by putting bones into the wolf's, you know, and mm-hmm. that's just something that uh, Taka suggested in his book might have been happening in some cases because it didn't make sense for bones to still be in there or clothing was shoved down their throats or they were taxidermied in a particular way. Well, thanks for covering all that. I mean, yeah, that's what I wanted to uh, read, not to dispel, but I, I wanted the the straight poop here on what's the real behavior of wolves. How likely is this that this was the case here in Jevoudon? From what we're reading here, because of the number of adults attacked, the methods, it does not seem like rabid wolves who attack indiscriminately because those die after about a week of having full-blown rabies. That's right. People do as well. Nobody ended up with rabies. So right. not rabid wolves. And it does not seem to fit with the predatory behavior of healthy wolves. Yes, there's children. Yes, there's other people being attacked. Some of these things fit. Yes. Well, one thing I was interested in, and I, I made a cut and paste here, comes from the article we've been talking about from David Bresson, how an ancient volcano helped a man-eating wolf terrorize 18th century France, and that was on Forbes.com. And he was talking about the anecdote about the herd forming around the shepherdess and protecting her from the beast and and uh, a few times as yes. this thing charged. And uh, something I liked here that he said in his writing, notable, the attacking animal seemed to be less interested in the cattle as in the girl. Yes. That's the other thing about regular predation is that, yeah, you know, you could say humans don't run very fast. We don't have any natural defenses. Then again, we got spears and knives and guns, at least in 1767 and 64. So when they lose their fear of humans, that's a different story. But my point here is that in regular predation, where are all the stories, the anecdotes about this thing taking people's cattle as well? Easy to pick off sheep calves, all the things that naturally happen with wolves in North America and attacking ranchers' cattle. So I didn't come across any of that here. It seems to be only going for the people. What's going on there? So that's very interesting. Uh, But Scott, uh, before we proceed any further, what's the deal with the Hyanodon? Well, this came from one of the newest members of the Astonishing Research Corps uh, who's just joined us. His name's Rowan Pike, I believe is his last name. And Rowan Mm -hmm. had pointed out uh, several animals, including some really cool dogs that we had never heard of uh, called a bear dog, which is a a very popular dog in Finland. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that really did strike me was the Hyanodon, which is, according to Wikipedia, a family of extinct carnivorous fossil mammals from Eurasia, North America, and Africa. And when you look at this thing, it does seem to have some things in common with the hyena, except it is much stockier, much larger, and its appearance matches a lot to me. And this it hasn't been mentioned in the stuff that we read. This is something, I'm not sure exactly where uh, Rowan found this, actually. I think it says here in our research mm-hmm. group. But the thing that struck me about it and the reason that I wanted to include it here was because when you look at this and you think about all the descriptions of what people described, it's a pretty good match. Size, mm. coloring, the tail, the shape of it, Everything mm-hmm. about it, but this, you know, it's just one catch. It's extinct. It's been extinct for <laughs> uh, a long, long time. It's the coelacanth of canine slash felines. Yeah, maybe so. And you know, and who knows if the, if it was still around, would it attack humans over cattle? 
Probably not, but it is something that I wanted to yeah. throw in there. Uh, Rowan, thanks for digging that up. Well, that is interesting. Yeah, we had a couple of ARC members who also posited interesting theories and, and collections of stuff. Paul S., I want to give a shout out to, as well as Luke H., our paleontologist from Edinburgh. They bring up a lot of points that we did end up covering in the episode already. So kind of the same thinking that we we were going through here. But circling back to one of the authors, uh, Scott Red, for this episode, and I got to admit, if I'm going with a mundane explanation, I like this one maybe the best. And this is, again, by Carl Hans Tacke, who, I'm going to read his bio here, is a biologist and a former academic assistant of the University of Omsnabruck in northwestern Germany, where he wrote his doctoral thesis on behavioral ecology. And he published zoological research papers, contributed to manuals about mammals, edited and translated books on biology, and was a scientific editor for a universal encyclopedia. I didn't make too many notes from it, other than you want to talk about what his theory is, because I, again, from the descriptions, it makes sense. I don't know how this is more possible than the other more outlandish explanations, but the behavior sounds right. And his theory, boy, I hope I'm not going to spoil anything for you, Scott, and your explanations and conclusions, but uh, Taka's idea here is that it is some kind of sub-adult lion, some kind of feline, based on the description of a mohawk mane, and not a full mane yet, of a fully adult lion, uh, the thin tail with the tuft at the end, the claws, just the large head with the snout. To Taka, this is starting to sound like some form of lion that may have escaped a zoo or some breeder. And uh, as we know from our, again, mentioning our good friend Gledders, saw a black panther not too far from his home in England. Those are around. Uh, we know because he sent us pictures. Size of a medium to large dog, and it's uh, definitely some large black cat, like a panther. So he's seen one. It's kind of crazy, and he's not the only one. Reports come in quite a bit of panther-like large cats surviving in the English countryside, so they have their own version of that. Is that what's going on here? And this thing just happens to attack a bunch of people, and and they certainly would have been, as I think Taka says, familiar with lions and big cats like that by the late 18th century. Maybe not so much uh, the, you know, as the peasant folk, but they certainly know their own animals. And again, there were other people coming into the area who were, let's say, had more of an education and they were more familiar with this stuff. So maybe that's what's going on here. But like I said, if I had to pick a mundane explanation, this one is one of the more reasonable ones to me. A lot more than just wolf or pack of wolves. Well, I have quite a bit to say on that, but I'm going to hold my comments. <laughs> because before you do, yes. I just want to get a couple of crazy items off my plate here. Okay, and then ahead. you're you're well to have at it. So uh, these are other things that, you know, if we, if we were going to, back in the old days, turn this into a part two... I might get around to talking about, and that's other dogmen and canine beasts. Because on the other hand, you, uh, we and you, dear listener, know of other <laughs> another angle on mysteries like these, and those mysteries include widely reported creatures like cigarette-smoking, Hawaiian shirt-wearing, wolf-headed skinwalkers yes. of Skinwalker Ranch fame, the humanoid canine of the Beast of Bray Road, and the Michigan Dogman. Some of these we may cover one of these days here, maybe this year, who knows? It's still on our list, it's at the top, but... We had a lot to get to, but yeah, I, I love those stories. And this is a, let's say, a phenomenon called cynocephaly, okay? Uh, cynocephaly, uh, from Wiki here, is the characteristic of, of cynocephaly or cynocephalus uh, having the head of a dog or of a jackal. 
but the body of a man. It's a widely attested mythical phenomenon existing in many different forms and contexts. The literal meaning of cynocephaly is dog-headed, uh, but it, this refers to a human body with a dog head. And maybe some kind of a beast like that was terrorizing the people, and you think that's kind of crazy, but uh, it's been reported in uh, stories from around the world, and most famously by Marco Polo, where he met a bunch of them. Now, now get this. I, I love little gems and, uh, and Easter eggs that you find here. Other medieval travelers... Giovanni Don Pian del Carpine and Marco Polo both mentioned meeting these dogmen, and I believe uh, Marco Polo was saying they were pretty savage. Uh, they spoke and barked and grunted, uh, but not very cultured <laughs> dog people. Uh, but check this out, okay? Giovanni, who I just mentioned, writes of the armies of Ogadaikon. I'm just going to read from the wiki entry here. Born or lived uh, circa 1186 to uh, 11, 11, perhaps, or I'm sorry, 1241, the year, was the third son of Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan, and second great Khan of the Mongol Empire, succeeding his father. Uh, he continued the expansion of the empire that his father had begun, and was a world figure when the Mongol Empire reached its farthest extent west and south during the Mongol invasions of Europe and East Asia. And like all of Genghis's primary sons, he participated extensively in conquests in China, Iran, and Central Asia. And Giovanni, as I just said, mentions the armies of this Ogadai Khan, who encounter a race of dogheads, <laughs> dogheaded men who live north of the Dalai Nor, or Northern Ocean, or another name for that, Lake Baikal. Mm. There are dog-headed armies of men living near Lake Baikal. Everything's connected. Just want to throw that in there. Yeah. Just, uh, I love those little old gems. Old <laughs> so, For those yeah, so as we people said, that have no idea what we're talking about, we did an episode on Lake Baikal. So. That's true. And all these strange, fascinating things, and that's one I always point to where you just think like, well, it's a really cool deep lake. This will be a great geology uh, episode. And it's like, nope, there's uh, aliens wearing bubble-headed uh, swim helmets, long suits, nine feet tall. And, uh, and also it led to other crazy stories of... Uh, the People's Republic of China Army finding sleeping uh, giants yes. that were in some kind of suspended animation. And man, I wish I had more information on that. But it's, uh, you know, these obscure Chinese military reports that don't seem to exist. That's episode 32 of our show that uh, ran on February 27th of 2016. <laughs> it's called The Pearl of Siberia, if you're right. interested in it. so Well, I, that's the thing is that, uh, you know, we tend to take Marco Polo pretty seriously. In the travels of Marco Polo, as we mentioned, uh, there are dog-headed barbarians he writes about on the island of Angamanane, or the Andaman Islands. For Polo, uh, although these people grow spices, they are nonetheless cruel and are, quote, are all just like big mastiff dogs, which is Jean Chastel's mastiff dog. It was just a large dog breed, but uh, they thought he had a mastiff uh, that was reddish in color that may have bred with a wolf, and that's where you get the man-eater here. Well, in the voyage and travels of Sir John Mandeville, dog-headed men are described as inhabiting the island of Nakumara, or the Nicobar Islands. So there's a whole tradition of weird hybrid dog people that uh, I don't know if they're killers per se, but uh, it blends a lot of stuff and it just pops up in history. And it's, uh, if you know your history pretty well, it's pretty crazy. I want to give it a shout out to our own Miss Miranda from the Midnight Library, who's done a terrific episode on the Black Shuck, which is England's own historical large uh, murderous uh, dog uh, terrorizing people and uh, ripping up a church. 
in the 1500s, I believe. Uh, it's one of my favorite episodes of hers. Yeah, so anyways, I wrap up my my crazy, let's say, also-rans and honorable mentions. I am leaning towards the more werewolf kind of stuff here in that uh, something strange was going on. Okay, if you're going to make me, you're going to force me to pick something mundane, I might lean towards Taka's explanation, although I'm not sure there's any proof for that or any kind of, uh, well, it's unprovable anyway because we don't have any creature. We just have accounts from the 1760s. And we may never know, other than, again, these sworn affidavits from people of what happened. And certainly something really awful did happen in those three years that just terrorized the countryside and freaked people out and was so notable. It's a legend today. But what this thing actually was, we may never know. But uh, like I said, if you're going to pick something uh, mundane, I might... uh, Taka's explanation ticks off more boxes for me than almost anything else, I would say, other than some kind of chupacabra-like hybrid that was more canine, but but unidentifiable and just weird and had, had strange properties to it. But on the other side of the table, I will leave open the possibility for high strangeness, cryptids, weird creatures, dogmen, and perhaps a real true story of an 18th century werewolf. Well, yeah, my final conclusions are as follows. I actually am coming down in a couple of different areas on this, and I'm open to supernatural explanations. I think anybody that follows our show knows that we've talked about that stuff and that we're interested. I mean, when I look at Skinwalker Ranch, I think of Mm -hmm. supernatural explanations there without a doubt. However, in the case of this story, you don't hear a lot of details about UFOs or tubes of light or lots of different (laughs) kinds of creatures or dogs turning into puddles of goo. No, but what I'm saying is when I think about the supernatural canine, I think about Skinwalker, I think about all that stuff going hand in hand with it in that particular Mm -hmm. case. In the case of werewolves, which I think are a really fascinating idea, folkloric, it's just one of the premier folklore tales it's the bedrock of folklore really yeah, yeah and you can see how that story could evolve from this these crimes that this thing committed and i'll call them crimes they are they're crimes against humanity they were so vicious mm. and indiscriminate mm-hmm. killing women and children and also men when it when it could whatever this thing was or if it was a series of things and that's the part that I can't quite get my head wrapped around. Right. In any story like this, you have all these different accounts, and obviously they've been changed over time. And we all know the telephone game. We all know when we look at our series that we did on the Jersey Devil, we came to a lot of different conclusions. I mean, you and I came down a little bit differently on on that, but I did believe mm-hmm. that that was a lot of that had to do with political intrigue and people trying to get at each other and people's reputations. And that's a great point here you make, Scott, because there is also, of course, a socio-political backdrop to this story as well and how things are influenced. And and it always is. That's a human thing. But reading the descriptions that were logged, sworn by people as happening, it's, you know, people say like, oh, you know, that was like an animal, like an animal, you're acting like an animal. This does not even seem like animals feeding. It seemed like a crazed animal. And as we just said, I, I think we successfully ruled out rabid animals, That's rabid right. wolves. It's acting as though it's rabid, but it's not rabid. It's, I mean, it's acting as though it's rabid in terms of the aggression level, but not in terms of what it's choosing to attack yeah. necessarily. In the fact that it's acting like it hates people. Right. It wants to cause as much misery and pain and uh, shock 
when loved ones find their relatives in this manner. And as we said before, we didn't want to get too gruesome. We did mention some of the things, but just when you read the details of like, that's not hunger, that's just mutilation. It's just the weirdness of it. And and also wolves and, and things that do attack the head and neck don't generally chew your whole head off. It was also incredibly cunning. It didn't seem to fall yeah. for the traps that were set, the poison bait, the uh, soldiers dressed as women out in the fields trying to seem like good targets. None of that worked. And I think the most supernatural thing about it, however, when you look at all the cases, is how many times it seemed to be mortally wounded and how many times mm -hmm. it survived that. If you look at that and you think, well, then there must have been more than one. The mortally wounded ones, probably a bunch of them died. And then this other, these other ones came along. So then maybe are you looking at a pack of abnormally large and strange-looking animals, which might be wolves? Maybe so, but no one ever described being attacked by a pack. It was always a solo yeah. or a lone yeah. wolf situation in terms of the attack, if it was a wolf. The other thing that's going on, though, is we're getting these varying descriptions, and they compete against each other. Obviously, there's going to be some cases of misidentification, like that paper said. In other cases, there are going to be probably wolf attacks, but they're probably going to be, if it's a wolf attack, the wolf is either cornered or rabid or protecting its young. There's yeah. not going to be 110 wolf attacks. So right. there's something else going on there. For me, I have to agree with Taka in terms of the most likely culprit being feline. Mm -hmm. I have a little space over here for a supernatural explanation too. But <laughs> for me, the supernatural explanation isn't a werewolf. It's something worse. It's something mm. demonic and interdimensional and pure evil, like just really scary. Yeah. More yeah. than a dude that gets hairy and attacks people, like something worse <laughs> than that to me. However, that's where I go on the supernatural side of things because there, there's a lot of things about it that defy explanation. Coming back to the more mundane explanation that's still not quite mundane is that it was feline in origin. Yeah. There's a lot of talk in Taka's book as well as the other articles about menageries of animals, collections of animals. Mm -hmm. Menagerie, mm -hmm. I always think of the famous Star Trek episode <laughs> with right. Captain yes. Pike, which was named for that, where people would collect these exotic animals. You think about Benicio del Toro's character in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's like this collector. <laughs> he has a menagerie <laughs> yes. of yeah, things yeah, yeah. from all these different planets. That's right, what right. that was. And back at that time, people collected these exotic animals and they traveled with mm -hmm. them and charged you money to check it out or it would entertain the high courts. And it is completely plausible, especially with all the traveling that those things did, that something got away. And yeah. either that thing in itself was a vicious killer or it interbred with something else and created a vicious killer that they couldn't quite mm. figure out. There were descriptions, though, in these attacks that indicated that this thing may have been feline. They talk about long tail. At one point, it's described as thick. Another time, it's described as thin, but it's described as having a tassel. The black stripe on the back, which Taka right. indicates that the subadult human male lion would have. The lack of a mane people talk about, but lots of male lions didn't have manes. And get this, a lot of people have heard of the movie The Ghost in the Darkness. Mm -hmm. Val Kilmer mm -hmm. and Michael Douglas came out a while ago based on a true story about a couple of lions known as the Tsavo Maneaters in Kenya. Mm -hmm. that Savo man-eaters were attacking railroad workers in Kenya. There was stories that said it was 140 victims. The reality, according to Taka, was probably that it was closer to 35. But uh. these things, the ghost in the darkness, that's what in the movie yeah. they call the two yeah. lions, were very, very hard to catch. And they were male, and they had no manes, 
and all they wanted to do was eat people. Yeah. I'll read a little excerpt from the Wikipedia page on them. The Saba man-eaters were a pair of man-eating male lions in the Saba region, which were responsible for the deaths of a number of construction workers on the Kenya-Uganda railway between March and December of 1898. The significance of this lion pair was their unusual behavior of killing men and the manner of their attacks. These two lions were eventually captured, and they are now in the Museum of Natural History in Chicago on display. You can wow. see them. Yeah. And it's interesting because the way that one is posed, it's like laying flat on a rock like a cat stalking something. And that's mm -hmm. another thing mm -hmm. that's mentioned in these attacks, Yep, that it would get down on the ground and stalk like a snake on its belly. Also, yeah. there was the tail twitching. Anyone who's had a cat in their lives, a domestic <laughs> cat, knows that when that tail yeah. twitches, you're about to get scratched or bit. Because it's you're playing with it, and you took it to that point where it's like, oh right. hell no, and it's going to yeah. come, and it's going to let you know, and it's going to do that yeah. thing. It's going to lay down and thump you with its back legs or whatever. And so that to me is a very feline description of an attack. Now, in addition to that, there's another story that I actually hadn't heard of until we started working on this show. It's the man eaters of Njombe. Listen to this description from WorldAtlas.com. We'll have a link to this page. Between 1932 and 1947, the people of southern Tanzania lived under fear of being attacked by lions. One pride of 15 lions was especially violent, earning the name of Maneaters of Njombe. These lions were triggered by the British colonial government's efforts to control an outbreak of Rinderpest virus. In order to stop the virus that was killing local livestock, the government began killing off wild animals like zebra, wildebeest, and antelope. Consequently, lions began to starve and search for alternative prey. The Njombe pride was clever, moving through the night and killing during the day, which is opposite of typical lion behavior. Mm. Before they were exterminated by the British game warden, the Njombe pride claimed the lives of approximately 1,500 victims. Wow. Now, that's 15 lions. Yeah, it's a different situation. But when you look at how these lions were working and how ruthless and cunning they are and how once they find something that's working, they can repeat that pattern. And also environmental pressures, which there may have been ones that we're not even aware of going on in the area at the time for whatever this thing was that drove it to eat, want to eat people. Mm hmm. To me, it seems like the explanation is most likely feline. I think wolves have gotten a bad rap here. I think yeah. they probably didn't have anything to do with it. I think that this beast was either, as I said, super evil and existing on multiple planes at once and supernatural and immortal, or it was a lion, some kind of lion that got loose in the area and not being indigenous to the area, couldn't really figure out what to eat and found that people were the easiest thing to catch. Whether it was a displaced lion searching for food or some kind of immortal canine demon, based on all of the available evidence, I don't think it was ever able to be killed. And like the legend, La Bête de Gévoudon lives on. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Kylie McKay. I am Michael Camp. D-A-R-L-I-N-G. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. 
What? Really? Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 